Penguin Random House Audio presents Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by Brian Stevenson, read by the author. In memory of Alice Golden Stevenson, my mom. Introduction Higher Ground I wasn't prepared to meet a condemned man. In 1983, I was a 23-year-old student at Harvard Law School, working in Georgia on an internship, eager and inexperienced and worried that I was in over my head. I'd never seen the inside of a maximum security prison and had certainly never been to death row. When I learned that I would be visiting this prisoner alone, with no lawyer accompanying me, I tried not to let my panic show. George's death row is in a prison outside of Jackson, a remote town in a rural part of the state. I drove there by myself heading south on I-75 from Atlanta, my heart pounding harder the closer I got. I didn't really know anything about capital punishment and hadn't even taken a class in criminal procedure yet. I didn't have a basic grasp of the complex appeals process that shaped death penalty litigation a process that would in time become as familiar to me as the back of my hand. When I signed up for this internship, I hadn't given much thought to the fact that I would actually be meeting condemned prisoners. To be honest, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a lawyer. As the miles ticked by on those rural roads, the more convinced I became that this man was going to be very disappointed to see me. I studied philosophy in college and didn't realize until my senior year that no one would pay me to philosophize when I graduated. My frantic search for a post-graduation plan led me to law school mostly because other graduate programs required you to know something about your field of study to enroll. Law schools, it seemed, didn't require you to know anything. At Harvard, I could study law while pursuing a graduate degree in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government, which appealed to me. I was uncertain about what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew it would have something to do with the lives of the poor, America's history of racial inequality, and the struggle to be equitable and fair with one another. It would have something to do with the things I'd already seen in life so far and wondered about, but I couldn't really put it together in a way that made a career path clear. Not long after I started classes at Harvard, I began to worry I'd made the wrong choice. Coming from a small college in Pennsylvania, I felt very fortunate to have been admitted, but by the end of my first year, I'd grown disillusioned. At the time, Harvard Law School was a pretty intimidating place, especially for a 21-year-old. Many of the professors used the Socratic method, direct, repetitive, and adversarial questioning, which had the incidental effect of humiliating unprepared students. The courses seemed esoteric and disconnected from the race and poverty issues that had motivated me to consider law in the first place. Many of the students already had advanced degrees or had worked as paralegals with prestigious law firms. I had none of those credentials. I felt vastly less experienced and worldly than my fellow students. When law firms showed up on campus and began interviewing students a month after classes started, my classmates put on expensive suits and signed up so they could receive flyouts to New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or Washington, D.C. It was a complete mystery to me what exactly we were all busily preparing ourselves to do. I had never even met a lawyer before starting law school. 
I spent the summer after my first year in law school working with a juvenile justice project in Philadelphia and taking advanced calculus courses at night to prepare for my next year at the Kennedy School. After I started the public policy program in September, I still felt disconnected. The curriculum was extremely quantitative, focused on figuring out how to maximize benefits and minimize costs without much concern for what those benefits achieved and the costs created. While intellectually stimulating, decision theory, econometrics, and similar courses left me feeling adrift. But then suddenly, everything came into focus. I discovered that the law school offered an unusual one-month intensive course on race and poverty litigation taught by Betsy Bartholet, a law professor who had worked as an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Unlike most courses, this one took students off campus, requiring them to spend the month with an organization doing social justice work. I eagerly signed up, and so in December 1983, I found myself on a plane to Atlanta, Georgia, where I was scheduled to spend a few weeks working with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, SPDC. I hadn't been able to afford a direct flight to Atlanta, so I had to change planes in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where I met Steve Bright, the director of the SPDC, who was flying back to Atlanta after the holidays. Steve was in his mid-thirties and had a passion and certainty that seemed the direct opposite of my ambivalence. He'd grown up on a farm in Kentucky and ended up in Washington, D.C. after finishing law school. He was a brilliant trial lawyer at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia and had just been recruited to take over the SVDC, whose mission was to assist condemned people on death row in Georgia. He showed none of the disconnect between what he did and what he believed that I'd seen in so many of my law professors. When we met, he warmly wrapped me in a full-body hug, and then we started talking. We didn't stop till we reached Atlanta. Brian, he said at some point during our short flight, capital punishment means them without the capital get the punishment. We can't help people on death row without help from people like you. I was taken aback by his immediate belief that I had something to offer. He broke down the issues with the death penalty simply but persuasively, and I hung on every word, completely engaged by his dedication and charisma. I just hope you're not expecting anything too fancy while you're here, he said. Oh, no, I assured him. I'm grateful for the opportunity to work with you. Well, opportunity isn't necessarily the first word people think of when they think about doing work with us. We live kind of simply, and the hours are pretty intense. That's no problem for me. Well, actually, we might even be described as living less than simply, more like living poorly, maybe even barely living. Struggling to hang on, surviving on the kindness of strangers, scraping by day by day, uncertain of the future. I let slip a concerned look, and he laughed. I'm just kidding. Kind of. He moved on to other subjects, but it was clear that his heart and his mind were aligned with the plight of the condemned and those facing unjust treatment in jails and prisons. It was deeply affirming to meet someone whose work so powerfully animated his life. There were just a few attorneys working at the SPDC when I arrived that winter. Most of them were former criminal defense lawyers from Washington who had come to Georgia in response to a growing crisis. Death row prisoners couldn't get lawyers. In their 30s, men and women, black and white, these lawyers were comfortable with one another in a way that reflected a shared mission, shared hope, and shared stress about the challenges they faced.
After years of prohibition and delay, executions were again taking place in the Deep South, and most of the people crowded on death row had no lawyers and no right to counsel. There was a growing fear that people would soon be killed without ever having their cases reviewed by skilled counsel. We were getting frantic calls every day from people who had no legal assistance but whose dates of execution were on the calendar and approaching fast. I'd never heard voices so desperate. When I started my internship, everyone was extremely kind to me, and I felt immediately at home. The SVDC was located in downtown Atlanta in the Healy Building, a 16-story Gothic revival structure built in the early 1900s that was in considerable decline and losing tenants. I worked in a cramped circle of desks with two lawyers and did clerical work, answering phones and researching legal questions for staff. I was just getting settled into my office routine when Steve asked me to go to death row to meet with a condemned man whom no one else had time to visit. He explained that the man had been on the row for over two years and that they didn't yet have a lawyer to take his case. My job was to convey to this man one simple message. You will not be killed in the next year. I drove through farmland and wooded areas of rural Georgia, rehearsing what I would say when I met this man. I practiced my introduction over and over. Hello, my name is Brian. I'm a student with the... No. I'm a law student with... No. My name is Brian Stevenson. I'm a legal intern with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, and I've been instructed to inform you that you will not be executed soon. You can't be executed soon. You're not at risk of execution anytime soon. No. I continued practicing my presentation until I pulled up to the intimidating barbed wire fence and white guard tower of the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Center. Around the office, we just called it Jackson. So seeing the facility's actual name on a sign was jarring. It sounded clinical, even therapeutic. I parked and found my way to the prison entrance and walked inside the main building with its dark corridors and gated hallways, where metal bars barricaded every access point. The interior eliminated any doubt that this was a hard place. I walked down a tunneled corridor to the legal visitation area, with each step echoing ominously across the spotless tiled floor. When I told the visitation officer that I was a paralegal, sent to meet with a death row prisoner, he looked at me suspiciously. I was wearing the only suit I owned, and we could both see that it had seen better days. The officer's eyes seemed to linger long and hard over my driver's license before he tilted his head toward me to speak. You're not local. It was more of a statement than a question. No, sir. Well, I, I, I'm working in Atlanta. After calling the warden's office to confirm that my visit had been properly scheduled, he finally admitted me, brusquely directing me to the small room where the visit would take place. Don't get lost in here. We don't promise to come and find you, he warned. The visitation room was twenty feet square with a few stools bolted to the floor. Everything in the room was made of metal and secured. In front of the stools, wire mesh ran from a small ledge up to a ceiling twelve feet high. The room was an empty cage until I walked into it. For family visits, inmates and visitors had to be on opposite sides of the mesh interior wall. They spoke to one another through the wires of the mesh. Legal visits, on the other hand, were contact visits. The two of us would be on the same side of the room to permit more privacy. The room was small, and although I knew it couldn't be true, it felt like it was getting smaller by the second.
I began worrying again about my lack of preparation. I'd scheduled to meet with the client for one hour, but I wasn't sure how I'd fill even fifteen minutes with what I knew. I sat down on one of the stools and waited. After fifteen minutes of growing anxiety, I finally heard the clanging of chains on the other side of the door. The man who walked in seemed even more nervous than I was. He glanced at me, his face screwed up in a worried wince, and he quickly averted his gaze when I looked back. He didn't move far from the room's entrance, as if he really didn't want to enter the visitation room. He was a young, neatly groomed African-American man with short hair, clean-shaven, medium frame and build, wearing bright, clean prison whites. He looked immediately familiar to me, like everyone I'd grown up with, friends from school, people I played sports or music with, someone I'd talked to on the street about the weather. The guard slowly unchained him, removing his handcuffs and the shackles around his ankles, and then locked eyes with me and told me I had one hour. The officer seemed to sense that both the prisoner and I were nervous, and to take some pleasure in our discomfort, grinning at me before turning on his heel and leaving the room. The metal door banged loudly behind him and reverberated through the small space. The condemned man didn't come any closer, and I didn't know what else to do, so I walked over and offered him my hand. He shook it cautiously. We sat down and he spoke first. I'm Henry, he said. I'm very sorry were the first words I blurted out. Despite all my preparations and rehearsed remarks, I couldn't stop myself from apologizing repeatedly. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, okay. I, I, I don't really know. Um, I, I'm just a law student. I, I'm not a real lawyer. I, I'm so sorry I can't tell you very much, but I don't know very much. The man looked at me worriedly. Is everything all right with my case? Oh, yes, sir. The lawyers at SBDC sent me down to tell you that they don't have a lawyer yet. I mean, we don't have a lawyer for you yet, but you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. We're working on finding you a lawyer, a real lawyer, and we hope the lawyer will be down to see you in the next few months. I'm just a law student. I I'm really happy to help. I mean, if there's something I can do. The man interrupted my chatter by quickly grabbing my hands. I'm not going to have an execution date any time in the next year? No, sir, they said it would be at least a year before you get an execution date. Those words didn't sound very comforting to me, but Henry just squeezed my hands tighter and tighter. Thank you, man. I mean, really, thank you. This is great news. His shoulders unhunched, and he looked at me with intense relief in his eyes. You are the first person I've met in over two years after coming to death row who is not another death row prisoner or a death row guard. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad to get this news. He exhaled loudly and seemed to relax. I've been talking to my wife on the phone, but I haven't wanted her to come and visit me or bring the kids because I was afraid they'd show up and I'd have an execution date. I just don't want them here like that. Now I'm going to tell them they can come and visit. Thank you. I was astonished that he was so happy. I relaxed too and we began to talk. It turned out that we were exactly the same age. Henry asked me questions about myself and I asked him about his life. Within an hour we were both lost in conversation. We talked about everything. He told me about his family. He told me about his trial. He asked me about law school and my family. We talked about music, we talked about prison, we talked about what's important in life and what's not. I was completely absorbed in our conversation. 
We laughed at times and there were moments when he was very emotional and sad. We kept talking and talking, and it was only when I heard a loud bang on the door that I realized I'd stayed way past my allotted time for the legal visit. I looked at my watch. I'd been there three hours. The guard came in and he was angry. He snarled at me. You should have been done a long time ago. You have to leave. He began handcuffing Henry, pulling his hands together behind his back and locking them there. Then he roughly shackled Henry's ankles. The guard was so angry he put the cuffs on too tight I could see Henry grimacing with pain. I said, I think those cuffs are on too tight. Can you loosen them, please? I told you, you need to leave. You don't tell me how to do my job. Henry gave me a smile and said, It's okay, Brian. Don't worry about this. Just come back and see me again, okay? I could see him wince with each click of the chains being tightened around his waist. I must have looked pretty distraught. Henry kept saying, Don't worry, Brian. Don't worry. Come back, okay? As the officer pushed Henry toward the door, Henry turned back to look at me. I started mumbling. I I I'm really sorry. I I'm really sorry. Don't worry about this, Brian, he said, cutting me off. Just come back. I looked at him and struggled to say something appropriate, something reassuring, something that expressed my gratitude to him for being so patient with me, but I couldn't think of anything to say. Henry looked at me and smiled. The guard was shoving him toward the door roughly. I didn't like the way Henry was being treated, but he continued to smile until just before the guard could push him fully out of the room. He planted his feet to resist the officer's shoving. He looked so calm. Then he did something completely unexpected. I watched him close his eyes and tilt his head back. I was confused by what he was doing, but then he opened his mouth and I understood. He began to sing. He had a tremendous baritone voice that was strong and clear. It startled both me and the guard who stopped his pushing. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. It was an old hymn they used to sing all the time in the church where I grew up. I hadn't heard it in years. Henry sang slowly and with great sincerity and conviction. It took a moment before the officer recovered and resumed pushing him out the door. Because his ankles were shackled and his hands were locked behind his back, Henry almost stumbled when the guard shoved him forward. He had to waddle to keep his balance, but he kept on singing. I could hear him as he went down the hall. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. By faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane that I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I sat down completely stunned. Henry's voice was filled with desire. I experienced his song as a precious gift. I'd come into the prison with such anxiety and fear about his willingness to tolerate my inadequacy. I didn't expect him to be compassionate or generous. I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row. Yet he gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity. In that moment, Henry altered something in my understanding of human potential, redemption, and hopefulness. I finished my internship committed to helping the death row prisoners I had met that month. Proximity to the condemned and incarcerated made the question of each person's humanity more urgent and meaningful, including my own. 
I went back to law school with an intense desire to understand the laws and doctrines that sanctioned the death penalty and extreme punishments. I piled up courses on constitutional law, litigation, appellate procedure, federal courts, and collateral remedies. I did extra work to broaden my understanding of how constitutional theory shapes criminal procedure. I plunged deeply into the law and the sociology of race, poverty, and power. Law school had seemed abstract and disconnected before, but after meeting the desperate and imprisoned, it all became relevant and critically important. Even my studies at the Kennedy School took on a new significance. Developing the skills to quantify and deconstruct the discrimination and inequality I saw became urgent and meaningful. My short time on death row revealed that there was something missing in the way we treat people in our judicial system, that maybe we judge some people unfairly. The more I reflected on the experience, the more I recognized that I had been struggling my whole life with the question of how and why people are judged unfairly. I grew up in a poor, rural, racially segregated settlement on the eastern shore of the Delmarva Peninsula in Delaware, where the racial history of this country casts a long shadow. The coastal communities that stretch from Virginia and eastern Maryland to lower Delaware were unapologetically southern. Many people in the region insisted on a racialized hierarchy that required symbols, markers, and constant reinforcement, in part because of the area's proximity to the north. Confederate flags were proudly displayed throughout the region, boldly and defiantly marking the cultural, social, and political landscape. African Americans lived in racially segregated ghettos, isolated by railroad tracks within small towns or in colored sections in the country. I grew up in a country settlement where some people lived in tiny shacks. Families without indoor plumbing had to use outhouses. We shared our outdoor play space with chickens and pigs. The black people around me were strong and determined, but marginalized and excluded. The poultry plant bus came each day to pick up adults and take them to the factory where they would daily pluck, hack, and process thousands of chickens. My father left the area as a teenager because there was no local high school for black children. He returned with my mother and found work in a food factory. On weekends, he did domestic work at beach cottages and rentals. My mother had a civilian job at an Air Force base. It seemed that we were all cloaked in an unwelcome garment of racial difference that constrained, confined, and restricted us. My relatives worked hard all the time but never seemed to prosper. My grandfather was murdered when I was a teenager, but it didn't seem to matter much to the world outside our family. My grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia. She was born in the 1880s, her parents in the 1840s. Her father talked to her all the time about growing up in slavery and how he'd learned to read and write but kept it a secret. He hid the things he knew until emancipation. The legacy of slavery very much shaped my grandmother and the way she raised her nine children. It influenced the way she talked to me, the way she constantly told me to keep close. When I visited her, she would hug me so tightly I could barely breathe. After a little while, she would ask me, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? If I said yes, she'd let me be. If I said no, she would assault me again. I said no a lot because it made me happy to be wrapped in her formidable arms. She never tired of pulling me to her. You can't understand most of the important things from a distance, Brian. You have to get close, she told me all the time. 
The distance I experienced in my first year of law school made me feel lost. Proximity to the condemned, to people unfairly judged, that was what guided me back to something that felt like home. This book is about getting closer to mass incarceration and extreme punishment in America. It is about how easily we condemn people in this country and the injustice we create when we allow fear, anger, and distance to shape the way we treat the most vulnerable among us. It's also about a dramatic period in our recent history, a period that indelibly marked the lives of millions of Americans, of all races, ages, and sexes, and the American psyche as a whole. When I first went to death row in December 1983, America was in the early stages of a radical transformation that would turn us into an unprecedentedly harsh and punitive nation and result in mass imprisonment that has no historical parallel. Today, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The prison population has increased from 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people today. There are nearly 6 million people on probation or on parole. One in every 15 people born in the United States in 2001 is expected to go to jail or prison. One in every three black male babies born in this century is expected to be incarcerated. We have shot, hanged, gassed, electrocuted, and lethally injected hundreds of people to carry out legally sanctioned executions. Thousands more await their execution on death row. Some states have no minimum age for prosecuting children as adults. We've sent a quarter million kids to adult jails and prisons to serve long prison terms, some under the age of 12. For years, we've been the only country in the world that condemns children to life imprisonment without parole. Nearly 3,000 juveniles have been sentenced to die in prison. Hundreds of thousands of nonviolent offenders have been forced to spend decades in prison. We've created laws that make writing a bad check or committing a petty theft or minor property crime, an offense that can result in life imprisonment. We have declared a costly war on people with substance abuse problems. There are more than a half million people in state or federal prisons for drug offenses today, up from just 41,000 in 1980. We have abolished parole in many states. We have invented slogans like, Three strikes and you're out, to communicate our toughness. We've given up on rehabilitation education, and services for the imprisoned because providing assistance to the incarcerated is apparently too kind and compassionate. We've institutionalized policies that reduce people to their worst acts and permanently label them criminal, murderer, rapist, thief, drug dealer, sex offender, felon, identities they cannot change regardless of the circumstances of their crimes or any improvements they might make in their lives. The collateral consequences of mass incarceration have been equally profound. We ban poor women and inevitably their children from receiving food stamps and public housing if they have prior drug convictions. We've created a new caste system that forces thousands of people into homelessness, bans them from living with their families and in their communities, and renders them virtually unemployable. Some states permanently strip people with criminal convictions of the right to vote. As a result, in several southern states, disenfranchisement among African-American men has reached levels unseen since before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We also make terrible mistakes. Scores of innocent people have been exonerated after being sentenced to death and nearly executed. 
Hundreds more have been released after being proved innocent of non-capital crimes through DNA testing. Presumptions of guilt, poverty, racial bias, and a host of other social, structural, and political dynamics have created a system that is defined by error, a system in which thousands of innocent people now suffer in prison. Finally, we spend lots of money. Spending on jails and prisons by state and federal governments has risen from 6.9 billion in 1980 to nearly 80 billion today. Private prison builders and prison service companies have spent millions of dollars to persuade state and local governments to create new crimes, impose harsher sentences, and keep more people locked up so that they can earn more profits. Private profit has corrupted incentives to improve public safety. Reduce the cost of mass incarceration, and most significantly, promote rehabilitation of the incarcerated. State governments have been forced to shift funds from public services, education, health, and welfare to pay for incarceration, and they now face unprecedented economic crises as a result. The privatization of prison healthcare, prison commerce, and a range of services has made mass incarceration a money-making windfall for a few. And a costly nightmare for the rest of us. After graduating from law school, I went back to the Deep South to represent the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. In the last thirty years, I've gotten close to people who have been wrongly convicted and sent to death row. People like Walter McMillan. In this book, you will learn the story of Walter's case, which taught me about our system's disturbing indifference to inaccurate. Or unreliable verdicts, our comfort with bias, and our tolerance of unfair prosecutions and convictions. Walter's experience taught me how our system traumatizes and victimizes people when we exercise our power to convict and condemn irresponsibly, not just the accused, but also their families, their communities, and even the victims of crime. But Walter's case also taught me something else: that there is light within this darkness. Walter's story is one of the many that I tell in the following chapters. I've represented abused and neglected children who were prosecuted as adults and suffered more abuse and mistreatment after being placed in adult facilities. I've represented women whose numbers in prison have increased 640 percent in the last 30 years, and seen how our hysteria about drug addiction and our hostility to the poor have made us quick to criminalize and prosecute poor women when a pregnancy goes wrong. I've represented mentally disabled people whose illnesses have often landed them in prison for decades. I've gotten close to victims of violent crime and their families, and witnessed how even many of the custodians of mass imprisonment, prison staff, have been made less healthy, more violent and angry, and less just and merciful. I've also represented people who have committed terrible crimes, but nonetheless struggle to recover and to find redemption. I have discovered deep in the hearts of many condemned and incarcerated people the scattered traces of hope and humanity, seeds of restoration that come to astonishing life when nurtured by very simple interventions. Proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson: each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated. Has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth; the opposite of poverty is justice. 
Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality, cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Chapter 1 Mockingbird Players The temporary receptionist was an elegant African-American woman wearing a dark, expensive business suit, a well-dressed exception to the usual crowd at the Southern Prisoners' Defense Committee, SPDC, in Atlanta, where I had returned after graduation to work full-time. On her first day, I'd rambled over to her in my regular uniform of jeans and sneakers and offered to answer any questions she might have to help her get acclimated. She looked at me coolly and waved me away after reminding me that she was, in fact, an experienced legal secretary. The next morning when I arrived at work in another jeans and sneakers ensemble, she seemed startled, as if some strange vagrant had made a wrong turn into the office. She took a beat to compose herself, then summoned me over to confide that she was leaving in a week to work at a real law office. I wished her luck. An hour later, she called my office to tell me that Robert E. Lee was on the phone. I smiled, pleased that I'd misjudged her. She clearly had a sense of humor. That's really funny. I'm not joking. That's what he said, she said, sounding bored, not playful. Line two. I picked up the line. Hello, this is Brian Stevenson. May I help you? Brian, this is Robert E. Lee Key. Why in the hell would you want to represent someone like Walter McMillan? Do you know he's reputed to be one of the biggest drug dealers in all of South Alabama? I got your notice entering an appearance, but you don't want anything to do with this case. Sir? This is Judge Key, and you don't want to have anything to do with this McMillan case. No one really understands how depraved this situation truly is, including me, but I know it's ugly. These men might even be Dixie Mafia. The lecturing tone and bewildering phrases from a judge I'd never met left me completely confused. Dixie Mafia? I'd met Walter McMillan two weeks earlier after spending a day on death row to begin work on five capital cases. I hadn't reviewed the trial transcript yet, but I did remember that the judge's last name was Key. No one had told me about the Robert E. Lee part. I struggled for an image of Dixie Mafia that would fit Walter McMillan. Dixie Mafia? Yes, and there's no telling what else. Now, son, I'm just not going to appoint some out-of-state lawyer who's not a member of the Alabama Bar to take on one of these death penalty cases. So you just go ahead and withdraw. I'm a member of the Alabama Bar. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, but I had been admitted to the Alabama Bar a year earlier after working on some cases in Alabama concerning jail and prison conditions. 
Well, I'm now sitting in Mobile. I'm not up in Monroeville anymore. If we have a hearing on your motion, you're going to have to come all the way from Atlanta to Mobile. I'm not going to accommodate you no kind of way. I understand, sir. I can come to Mobile if necessary. Well, I'm also not going to appoint you because I don't think he's indigent. He's reported to have money buried all over Monroe County. Judge, I'm not seeking appointment. I've told Mr. McMillan that we would... The dial tone interrupted my first affirmative statement of the phone call. I spent several minutes thinking we'd been accidentally disconnected before finally realizing that a judge had just hung up on me. I was in my late twenties and about to start my fourth year at the SPDC when I met Walter McMillan. His case was one of the flood of cases I'd found myself frantically working on after learning of a growing crisis in Alabama. The state had nearly a hundred people on death row, as well as the fastest-growing condemned population in the country. But it also had no public defender system, which meant that large numbers of death row prisoners had no legal representation of any kind. My friend Eva Ansley ran an Alabama prison project, which tracked cases and matched lawyers with the condemned men. In 1988, we discovered an opportunity to get federal funding to create a legal center that could represent people on death row. The plan was to use that funding to start a new nonprofit. We hoped to open it in Tuscaloosa and begin working on cases in the next year. I'd already worked on lots of death penalty cases in several southern states, sometimes winning a stay of execution just minutes before an electrocution was scheduled. But I didn't think I was ready to take on the responsibilities of running a nonprofit law office. I planned to help get the organization off the ground, find a director, and then return to Atlanta. When I'd visited Death Row a few weeks before that call from Robert E. Lee Key, I met with five desperate condemned men: Willie Tab, Vernon Madison, Jesse Morrison, Harry Nix, and Walter McMillan. It was an exhausting, emotionally taxing day, and the cases and clients had merged together in my mind on the long drive back to Atlanta. But I remembered Walter. He was at least fifteen years older than me, not particularly well educated, and he hailed from a small rural community. The memorable thing about him was how insistent he was that he'd been wrongly convicted. Mr. Bryan, I know it may not matter to you. But it's important to me that you know that I'm innocent and didn't do what they said I did. Not no kind of way, he told me in the meeting room. His voice was level but laced with emotion. I nodded to him. I had learned to accept what clients tell me until the facts suggest something else. Sure, of course, I understand. When I review the record, I'll have a better sense of what evidence they have, and we can talk about it. But look. I'm sure I'm not the first person on death row to tell you that they're innocent, but I really need you to believe me. My life has been ruined. This lie they put on me is more than I can bear. And if I don't get help from someone who believes me, his lip began to quiver, and he clenched his fist to stop himself from crying. I sat quietly while he forced himself back into composure. I'm sorry. I know you'll do everything you can to help me, he said. His voice quieter. My instinct was to comfort him. His pain seemed so sincere, but there wasn't much I could do. And after several hours on the road talking to so many people, I could muster only enough energy to reassure him that I would look at everything carefully. 
I had several transcripts piled up in my small Atlanta office ready to move to Tuscaloosa once the office opened. With Judge Robert E. Lee Key's peculiar comments still running through my head, I went through the mound of records until I found the transcripts from Walter McMillan's trial. There were only four volumes of trial proceedings, which meant that the trial had been short. The judge's dramatic warnings now made Mr. McMillan's emotional claim of innocence too intriguing to put off any longer. I started reading. Even though he had lived in Monroe County his whole life, Walter McMillan had never heard of Harper Lee or To Kill a Mockingbird. Monroeville, Alabama, celebrated its native daughter, Lee, shamelessly after her award-winning book became a national bestseller in the 1960s. She returned to Monroe County but secluded herself and was rarely seen in public. Her reclusiveness proved no barrier to the county's continued efforts to market her literary classic or to market itself by using the book's celebrity. Production of the film adaptation brought Gregory Peck to town for the infamous courtroom scenes. His performance won him an Academy Award. Local leaders later turned the old courthouse into a mockingbird museum. A group of locals formed the Mockingbird Players of Monroeville to present a stage version of the story. The production was so popular that national and international tours were organized to provide an authentic presentation of the fictional story to audiences everywhere. Sentimentality about Lee's story grew even as the harder truths of the book took no root. The story of an innocent black man bravely defended by a white lawyer in the 1930s fascinated millions of readers, despite its uncomfortable exploration of false accusations of rape involving a white woman. Lee's endearing characters, Atticus Finch, and his precocious daughter, Scout, captivated readers while confronting them with some of the realities of race and justice in the South. A generation of future lawyers grew up hoping to become the courageous Atticus, who at one point arms himself to protect the defenseless black suspect from an angry mob of white men looking to lynch him. Today, dozens of legal organizations hand out awards in the fictional lawyer's name to celebrate the model of advocacy described in Lee's novel. What is often overlooked is that the black man falsely accused in the story was not successfully defended by Atticus. Tom Robinson, the wrongly accused black defendant, is found guilty. Later he dies when, full of despair, he makes a desperate attempt to escape from prison. He is shot 17 times in the back by his captors, dying ingloriously but not unlawfully. Walter McMillan, like Tom Robinson, grew up in one of several poor black settlements outside of Monroeville, where he worked the fields with his family before he was old enough to attend school. The children of sharecroppers in southern Alabama were introduced to plowing, planting, and picking as soon as they were old enough to be useful in the fields. Educational opportunities for black children in the 1950s were limited, but Walter's mother got him to the dilapidated colored school for a couple of years when he was young. By the time Walter was eight or nine, he became too valuable for picking cotton to justify the remote advantages of going to school. By the age of 11, Walter could run a plow as well as any of his older siblings. Times were changing, for better and for worse. Monroe County had been developed by plantation owners in the 19th century for the production of cotton. Situated in the coastal plain of southwest Alabama, the fertile, rich black soil of the area attracted white settlers from the Carolinas 
who amassed very successful plantations and a huge slave population. For decades after the Civil War, the large African American population toiled in the fields of the Black Belt as sharecroppers and tenant farmers, dependent on white landowners for survival. In the 1940s, thousands of African Americans left the region as part of the Great Migration, and headed mostly to the Midwest and West Coast for jobs. Those who remained continued to work the land, but the outmigration of African Americans combined with other factors to make traditional agriculture less sustainable as the economic base of the region. By the 1950s, small cotton farming was becoming increasingly less profitable. Even with the low-wage labor provided by black sharecroppers and tenants, the state of Alabama agreed to help white landowners in the region transition to timber farming and forest products by providing extraordinary tax incentives for pulp and paper mills. Thirteen of the state's sixteen pulp and paper mills were opened during this period. Across the Black Belt, more and more acres were converted to growing pine trees for paper mills and industrial uses. African Americans, largely excluded from this new industry, found themselves confronting new economic challenges, even as they won basic civil rights. The brutal era of sharecropping and Jim Crow was ending, but what followed was persistent unemployment and worsening poverty. The region's counties remained some of the poorest in America. Walter was smart enough to see the trend. He started his own pulpwood business that evolved with the timber industry in the 1970s. He astutely and bravely borrowed money to buy his own power saw, tractor, and pulpwood truck. By the 1980s, he had developed a solid business that didn't generate a lot of extra money, but afforded him a gratifying degree of independence. If he had worked at the mill or the factory, or had had some other unskilled job, the kind that most poor black people in South Alabama worked. It would invariably mean working for white business owners and dealing with all the racial stress that that implied in Alabama in the 1970s and 1980s. Walter couldn't escape the reality of racism, but having his own business in a growing sector of the economy gave him a latitude that many African Americans did not enjoy. That independence won Walter some measure of respect and admiration, but it also cultivated contempt and suspicion. Especially outside of Monroeville's black community, Walter's freedom was, for some of the white people in town, well beyond what African Americans with limited education were able to achieve through legitimate means. Still, he was pleasant, respectful, generous, and accommodating, which made him well liked by the people with whom he did business, whether black or white. Walter was not without his flaws. He had long been known as a ladies' man. Even though he had married young and had three children with his wife Minnie, it was well known that he was romantically involved with other women. Tree work is notoriously demanding and dangerous. With few ordinary comforts in his life, the attention of women was something Walter did not easily resist. There was something about his rough exterior, his bushy long hair and uneven beard, combined with his generous and charming nature, that attracted the attention of some women. Walter grew up understanding how forbidden it was for a black man to be intimate with a white woman, but by the 1980s he had allowed himself to imagine that such matters might be changing. Perhaps if he hadn't been successful enough to live off his own business, he would have more consistently kept in mind those racial lines that could never be crossed. As it was, Walter didn't initially think much of the flirtations of Karen Kelly, a young white woman he'd met at the Waffle House where he ate breakfast.
She was attractive, but he didn't take her too seriously. When her flirtations became more explicit, Walter hesitated, and then persuaded himself that no one would ever know. After a few weeks, it became clear that his relationship with Karen was trouble. At 25, Karen was 18 years younger than Walter, and she was married. As word got around that the two were friends, she seemed to take titillating pride in her intimacy with Walter. When her husband found out, things quickly turned ugly. Karen and her husband Joe had long been unhappy and were already planning to divorce, but her scandalous involvement with a black man outraged Karen's husband and his entire family. He initiated legal proceedings to gain custody of their children and became intent on publicly disgracing his wife by exposing her infidelity and revealing her relationship with the black man. For his part, Walter had always stayed clear of the courts and far away from the law. Years earlier, he had been drawn into a bar fight that resulted in a misdemeanor conviction and a night in jail. It was the first and only time he had ever been in trouble. From that point on, he had no exposure to the criminal justice system. When Walter received a subpoena from Karen Kelly's husband to testify at a hearing where the Kellys would be fighting over their children's custody, he knew it was going to cause him serious problems. Unable to consult with his wife Minnie, who had a better head for these kinds of crises, he nervously went to the courthouse. The lawyer for Kelly's husband called Walter to the stand. Walter had decided to acknowledge being a friend of Karen. Her lawyer objected to the crude questions posed to Walter by the husband's attorney about the nature of his friendship, sparing him from providing any details. But when he left the courtroom, the anger and animosity toward him were palpable. Walter wanted to forget about the whole ordeal, but word spread quickly, and his reputation shifted. No longer the hard-working Popewood man, known to white people almost exclusively for what he could do with a saw in the pine trees, Walter now represented something more worrisome. Fears of interracial sex and marriage have deep roots in the United States. The confluence of race and sex was a powerful force in dismantling Reconstruction after the Civil War, sustaining Jim Crow laws for a century, and fueling divisive racial politics throughout the 20th century. In the aftermath of slavery, the creation of a system of racial hierarchy and segregation was largely designed to prevent intimate relationships like Walter and Karen's, relationships that were, in fact, legally prohibited by anti-miscegenation statutes. The word miscegenation came into use in the 1860s when supporters of slavery coined the term to promote the fear of interracial sex and marriage and the race mixing that would result if slavery was abolished. For over a century, law enforcement officials in many Southern communities absolutely saw it as part of their duty to investigate and punish black men who had been intimate with white women. Although the federal government had promised racial equality for freed former slaves during the short period of Reconstruction, the return of white supremacy and racial subordination came quickly after federal troops left Alabama in the 1870s. Voting rights were taken away from African Americans, and a series of racially restrictive laws enforced the racial hierarchy. Racial integrity laws were part of a plan to replicate slavery's racial hierarchy and reestablish the subordination of African Americans. Having criminalized interracial sex and marriage, states throughout the South would use the laws to justify the forced sterilization of poor and minority women. 
Forbidding sex between white women and black men became an intense preoccupation throughout the South. In the 1880s, a few years before lynching became the standard response to interracial romance, and a century before Walter and Karen Kelly began their affair, Tony Pace, an African American man, and Mary Cox, a white woman, fell in love in Alabama. They were arrested and convicted, and both were sentenced to two years in prison for violating Alabama's racial integrity laws. John Tompkins, a lawyer and part of the small minority of white professionals who considered the racial integrity laws to be unconstitutional, agreed to represent Tony and Mary to appeal their convictions. The Alabama Supreme Court reviewed the case in 1882. With rhetoric that would be quoted frequently over the next several decades, Alabama's highest court affirmed the convictions using language that dripped with contempt for the ideal of interracial romance. The evil tendency of the crime of adultery or fornication is greater when committed between persons of the two races. Its result may be the amalgamation of the two races, producing a mongrel population and a degraded civilization. The prevention of which is dictated by a sound policy affecting the highest interests of society and government. The United States Supreme Court reviewed the Alabama court's decision, using separate but equal language that previewed the court's infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson 20 years later. The court unanimously upheld Alabama's restrictions on interracial sex and marriage and affirmed the prison terms imposed on Tony Pace and Mary Cox. Following the court's decision, more states passed racial integrity laws that made it illegal for African Americans and sometimes Native Americans and Asian Americans to marry or have sex with whites. While the restrictions were aggressively enforced in the South, they were also common in the Midwest and West. The state of Idaho banned interracial marriage and sex between white and black people in 1921. Even though the state's population was 99.8 percent non-black, it wasn't until 1967 that the United States Supreme Court finally struck down anti-miscegenation statutes in Loving v. Virginia. But restrictions on interracial marriage persisted even after that landmark ruling. Alabama's state constitution still prohibited the practice in 1986 when Walter met Karen Kelly. Section 102 of the state constitution read. The legislature shall never pass any law to authorize or legalize any marriage between any white person and a Negro or descendant of a Negro. Note: Even though the restriction couldn't be enforced under federal law, the state ban on interracial marriage in Alabama continued into the 21st century. In 2000, reformers finally had enough votes to get the issue on the statewide ballot, where a majority of voters chose to eliminate the ban. Although 41% voted to keep it, a 2011 poll of Mississippi Republicans found that 46% support a legal ban on interracial marriage, 40% oppose such a ban, and 14% are undecided. No one expected a relatively successful and independent man like Walter to follow every rule. Occasionally drinking too much, getting into a fight, or even having an extramarital affair. These weren't indiscretions significant enough to destroy the reputation and standing of an honest and industrious black man who could be trusted to do good work. But interracial dating, particularly with a married white woman, was for many whites an unconscionable act. In the South, crimes like murder or assault might send you to prison, 
But interracial sex was a transgression in its own unique category of danger, with correspondingly extreme punishments. Hundreds of black men have been lynched for even unsubstantiated suggestions of such intimacy. Walter didn't know the legal history, but like every black man in Alabama, he knew deep in his bones the perils of interracial romance. Nearly a dozen people had been lynched in Monroe County alone since its incorporation. Dozens of additional lynchings had taken place in neighboring counties, and the true power of those lynchings far exceeded their number. They were acts of terror more than anything else, inspiring fear that any encounter with a white person, any interracial social misstep, any unintended slight, any ill-advised look or comment could trigger a gruesome and lethal response. Walter heard his parents and relatives talk about lynchings when he was a young child. When he was 12, the body of Russell Charlie, a black man from Monroe County, was found hanging from a tree in Vrendenburg, Alabama. The lynching of Charlie, who was known by Walter's family, was believed to have been prompted by an interracial romance. Walter remembered well the terror that shot through the black community in Monroe County when Charlie's lifeless, bullet-ridden body was found swinging in a tree. And now it seemed to Walter that everyone in Monroe County was talking about his own relationship with Karen Kelly. It worried him in a way that few things ever had. A few weeks later, an even more unthinkable act shocked Monroeville. In the late morning of November 1, 1986, Rhonda Morrison, the beautiful young daughter of a respected local family, was found dead on the floor of Monroe Cleaners, the shop where the 18-year-old college student had worked. She had been shot in the back three times. Murder was uncommon in Monroeville. An apparent robbery murder in a popular downtown business was unprecedented. The death of young Rhonda was a crime unlike anything the community had ever experienced. She was popular, an only child, and by all accounts without blemish. She was the kind of girl whom the entire white community embraced as a daughter. The police initially believed that no one from the community, black or white, would have done something so horrific. Two Latino men had been spotted in Monroeville looking for work the day Rhonda Morrison's body was found, and they became the first suspects. Police tracked them down in Florida and determined that the two men could not have committed the murder. The former owner of the cleaners, an older white man named Miles Jackson, fell under suspicion, but there was no evidence that pointed to him as a killer. The current owner of the cleaners, Rick Blair, was questioned but considered an unlikely suspect. Within a few weeks, the police had tapped out their leads. People in Monroe County began to whisper about the incompetence of the police. When there were still no arrests several months later, the whispers became louder, and public criticisms of the police, sheriff, and local prosecutor were aired in the local newspaper and on local radio stations. Tom Tate was elected the new county sheriff days after the murder took place, and folks started to question whether he was up to the job. The Alabama Bureau of Investigation, ABI, was called in to investigate the murder but achieved no more success solving the crime than local officials had. People in Monroeville became anxious. Local businesses posted rewards, offering thousands of dollars for information leading to an arrest. Gun sales, which were always robust, increased. Meanwhile, Walter was wrestling with his own problems. 
He had been trying for weeks to end his relationship with Karen Kelly. The child custody proceedings and public scandal had taken a toll on her. She had started using drugs and seemed to fall apart. She began to associate with Ralph Myers, a white man with a badly disfigured face and lengthy criminal record who seemed to perfectly embody her fall from grace. Ralph was an unusual partner for Karen, but she was in such serious decline that nothing she did made any sense to her friends and family. The relationship brought Karen to rock bottom, beyond scandal and drug use into serious criminal behavior. Together they became involved in dealing drugs and were implicated in the murder of Vicki Lynn Pittman, a young woman from neighboring Escambia County. Police had quick success in investigating the Pittman murder, rapidly concluding that Ralph Myers had been involved. When the police interrogated Ralph, they encountered a man as psychologically complicated as he was physically scarred. He was emotional and frail, and he craved attention. His only effective defense was his skill in manipulation and misdirection. Ralph believed that everything he said had to be epic, shocking, and elaborate. As a child living in foster care, he had been horribly burned in a fire. The burns so scarred and disfigured his face and neck that he needed multiple surgeries to regain basic functioning. He became quite used to strangers staring at his scars with pained expressions on their faces. He was a tragic outcast who lived on the margins, but he tried to compensate by pretending to have inside knowledge about all sorts of mysteries. After initially denying any direct involvement in the Pittman murder, Myers conceded that he may have played some accidental role, but quickly put the blame for the murder itself on more interesting local figures. He first accused a black man with a bad reputation named Isaac Daly, but the police quickly discovered that Daly had been in a jail cell on the night of the murder. Myers then confessed that he had made up the story because the true killer was none other than the elected sheriff of a nearby county. As outrageous as the claim was, ABI agents appeared to take it seriously. They asked him more questions, but the more Myers talked, the less credible his story sounded. Officials began to suspect that Myers was the sole killer and was desperately trying to implicate others to minimize his culpability. While the death of Vicki Pittman was news, it failed to compare with the continuing mystery surrounding the death of Rhonda Morrison. Vicki came from a poor white family, several of whose members were incarcerated. She enjoyed none of the status of Rhonda Morrison. The Morrison murder remained the focus of everyone's attention for months. Ralph Myers was illiterate, but he knew that it was the Morrison crime that was preoccupying law enforcement investigators. When his allegations against the sheriff didn't seem to be going anywhere, he changed his story again and told investigators that he had been involved in the murder of Vicki Pittman along with Karen Kelly and her black boyfriend, Walter McMillan. But that wasn't all. He also told police that McMillan was responsible for the murder of Rhonda Morrison. That assertion attracted the full attention of law enforcement officials. It soon became apparent that Walter McMillan had never met Ralph Myers, let alone committed two murders with him. To prove that the two of them were in cahoots, an ABI agent asked Myers to meet Walter McMillan at a store while agents monitored the interaction. It had been several months since Rhonda Morrison's murder. Once Myers entered the store, he was not able to identify Walter McMillan among several black men present. He had to ask the owner of the store to point McMillan out. He then delivered a note to McMillan, purportedly written by Karen Kelly. 
According to witnesses, Walter seemed confused both by Myers, a man he had never seen before, and the note itself. Walter threw the note away and went back to what he was doing. He paid little attention to the whole odd encounter. The monitoring ABI agents were left with nothing to suggest any relationship between Myers and McMillan, and plenty of evidence indicating that the two men had never met. Still, they persisted with the McMillan theory. Time was passing, seven months by this time, and the community was fearful and angry. Criticism was mounting. They desperately needed an arrest. Monroe County Sheriff Tom Tate did not have much law enforcement experience. By his own description, he was very local and took great pride in never having ventured too far from Monroeville. Now, four months into his term as sheriff, he faced a seemingly unsolvable murder and intense public pressure. When Myers told police about McMillan's relationship with Karen Kelly, it's likely that the infamous interracial affair was already well known to Tate as a result of the Kelly custody hearings that had generated so much gossip. But there was no evidence against McMillan, no evidence except that he was an African-American man involved in an adulterous interracial affair, which meant he was reckless and possibly dangerous, even if he had no prior criminal history and a good reputation. Maybe that was evidence enough. Chapter 2 Stand After spending the first year and a half of my legal career sleeping on Steve Bright's living room couch in Atlanta, it was time to find an apartment of my own. When I'd started working in Atlanta, staff were scrambling to handle one crisis after another. I was immediately thrown into litigation with pressing deadlines and didn't have time to find a place to live, and my $14,000 annual salary didn't leave me with much money for rent, so Steve kindly took me in. Living in Steve's small Grant Park duplex allowed me to question him nonstop about the complex issues and challenges our cases and clients presented. Each day we dissected big and small issues from morning until midnight. I loved it. But when a law school classmate, Charles Bliss, moved to Atlanta for a job with the Atlanta Legal Aid Society, we realized that if we pooled our meager salaries, we could afford a low-rent apartment. Charlie and I had started at Harvard Law School together and had lived in the same dorm as first-year students. He was a white kid from North Carolina who seemed to share my confusion about what we were experiencing during law school. We frequently retreated to the school gym to play basketball and to try to make sense of things. Charlie and I found a place near Atlanta's Inman Park. After a year, a rent increase forced us to move to the Virginia Highlands section of the city, where we stayed for a year before another rent increase sent us to Midtown Atlanta. The two-bedroom apartment we shared in Midtown was the nicest place in the nicest neighborhood we'd yet found. Because of my growing caseload in Alabama, I didn't get to spend much time there. My plan for a new law project to represent people on death row in Alabama was starting to take shape. My hope was to get the project off the ground in Alabama and eventually return to Atlanta to live. My docket of new death penalty cases in Alabama meant I was working insane hours, driving back and forth from Atlanta and simultaneously trying to resolve several prison condition cases I had filed in various southern states. Conditions of confinement for prisoners were getting worse everywhere. In the 1970s, the Attica prison riots drew national attention to horrible prison abuses. 
The takeover of Attica by inmates allowed the country to learn about cruel practices within prisons, such as solitary confinement, where inmates are isolated in a small confined space for weeks or months. Prisoners in some facilities would be placed in a sweat box, a casket-sized hole or a box situated where the inmate would be forced to endure extreme heat for days or weeks. Some prisoners were tortured with electric cattle prods as punishment for violations of the prison's rule. Inmates at some facilities would be chained to hitching posts, their arms fastened above their heads in a painful position where they'd be forced to stand for hours. The practice, which wasn't declared unconstitutional until 2002, was one of the many degrading and dangerous punishments imposed on incarcerated people. Terrible food and living conditions were widespread. The death of 42 people at the end of the Attica standoff exposed the danger of prison abuse and inhumane conditions. The increased attention also led to several Supreme Court rulings that provided basic due process protections for imprisoned people. Wary of potential violence, several states implemented reforms to eliminate the most abusive practices. But a decade later, the rapidly growing prison population inevitably led to a deterioration in the conditions of confinement. We were getting scores of letters from prisoners who continued to complain about horrible conditions. Prisoners reported that they were still being beaten by correctional staff and subjected to humiliation in stockades and other degrading punishments. An alarming number of cases came to our office involving prisoners who had been found dead in their cells. I was working on several of these cases, including one in Gadsden, Alabama, where jail officials claimed that a 39-year-old black man had died of natural causes after being arrested for traffic violations. His family maintained that he was beaten by police and jail officials, who then denied him his asthma inhaler and medication despite his begging for it. I'd spent a lot of time with the grief-stricken family of Lorita Ruffin and heard what an affectionate father he had been, how kind he had been, and how people had assumed things about him that weren't true. At six feet five inches tall and over 250 pounds, he could seem a little intimidating, but his wife and mother insisted that he was sweet and gentle. Gadsden police had stopped Mr. Ruffin one night because they said his car was swerving. Police discovered that his license had expired a few weeks earlier, so he was taken into custody. When he arrived at the city jail badly bruised and bleeding, Mr. Ruffin told the other inmates that he had been beaten terribly and was desperately in need of his inhaler and asthma medication. When I started investigating the case, inmates at the jail told me they saw officers beating Mr. Ruffin before taking him to an isolation cell. Several hours later, they saw medical personnel remove his body from the cell on a gurney. Despite the reforms of the 1970s and early 1980s, inmate death in jails and prisons was still a serious problem. Suicide, prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence, inadequate medical care, staff abuse, and guard violence claimed the lives of hundreds of prisoners every year. I soon received other complaints from people in the Gadsden community. The parents of a black teenager who had been shot and killed by police told me that their son had been stopped for a minor traffic violation after running a red light. Their young son had just started driving and became very nervous when the police officer approached him. His family maintained that he reached down to the floor where he kept his gym bag to retrieve his newly issued driver's license. 
The police claimed he was reaching for a weapon. No weapon was ever found, and the teen was shot dead while he sat in his car. The officer who shot the boy said that the teen had been menacing and had moved quickly in a threatening manner. The child's parents told me their son was generally nervous and easily frightened, but was also obedient and would never have hurt anyone. He was very religious and a good student, and he had the kind of reputation that allowed the family to persuade civil rights leaders to push for an investigation into his death. Their pleas reached our office, and I was looking into the case along with the jail and prison cases. Figuring out Alabama civil and criminal law while managing death penalty cases in several other states kept me very busy. The additional prison conditions litigation meant a lot of long-distance driving and extremely long hours. My weathered 1975 Honda Civic was struggling to keep up. The radio had stopped working consistently a year earlier. It would come to life only if I hit a pothole or stopped suddenly enough to violently shake the car and spark a connection. After making the three-hour drive back from Gadsden earlier in the day and heading straight to the office, it was once again approaching midnight as I left the office for home. I got in my car, and to my delight, the radio came on as soon as I turned the ignition. In just over three years of law practice, I'd become one of those people for whom such small events could make a big difference in my joy quotient. On this late night, not only was my radio working, but the station was also hosting a retrospective on the music of Sly and the Family Stone. I'd grown up listening to Sly and found myself rolling joyfully through the streets of Atlanta to tunes like Dance to the Music, Everybody is a Star, and Family Affair. Our midtown Atlanta apartment was on a dense residential street. Some nights I had to park halfway down the block or even around the corner to find a space. But tonight I was lucky. I parked my rattling Civic just steps from our new front door, just as Sly was starting hot fun in the summertime. It was late, and I needed to get to bed, but the moment was too good to let pass, so I remained in the car listening to the music. Each time a tune ended, I told myself to go inside but then another irresistible song would begin and I would find myself unable to leave. I was singing along to Stand, the soaring sly anthem with the great gospel-themed ending, when I saw a flashing police light approaching. I was parked a few doors up from our apartment, so I assumed that the officers would drive by in pursuit of some urgent mission. When they came to a stop twenty feet in front of me, I wondered what was going on. Our section of the street only ran one way. My parked car was facing in the proper direction. The police car had come down the street in the wrong direction. I noticed for the first time that it wasn't an ordinary police cruiser, but one of the special Atlanta SWAT cars. The officers had a spotlight attached to their vehicle, and they directed it at me sitting in my car. Only then did it occur to me that they might be there for me, but I couldn't imagine why. I had been parked on the street for about 15 minutes listening to Sly. Only one of my car speakers worked and not very well. I knew the music couldn't be heard outside the car. The officers sat there with their light pointed at me for a minute or so. I turned off the radio before stand was over. I had case files on my car seat about Rita Ruffin and the young man who had been shot in Gadsden. Eventually, two police officers got out of their vehicle I noticed immediately that they weren't wearing the standard Atlanta police uniform. Instead, 
They were ominously dressed in military-style black boots with black pants and vests. I decided to get out of my car and go home. Even though they were intensely staring at me in my car, I was still hoping that they were in the area for something unrelated to me. Or if they were concerned that something was wrong with me, I figured I would let them know that everything was okay. It certainly never occurred to me that getting out of my car was wrong or dangerous. As soon as I opened my car door and got out, the police officer who had started walking toward my vehicle drew his weapon and pointed it at me. I must have looked completely bewildered. My first instinct was to run. I quickly decided that wouldn't be smart. Then I thought for an instant that maybe these weren't real police officers. Move and I'll blow your head off. The officer shouted the words, but I couldn't make any sense of what he meant. I tried to stay calm. It was the first time in my life anyone had ever pointed a gun at me. Put your hands up. The officer was a white man about my height. In the darkness, I could only make out his black uniform and his pointed weapon. I put my hands up and noticed that he seemed nervous. I don't remember deciding to speak. I just remember the words coming out. It's all right. It's okay. I'm sure I sounded afraid because I was terrified. I kept saying the words over and over again. It's okay. It's okay. Finally, I said, "I live here. This is my apartment." I looked at the officer who was pointing the gun at my head, less than fifteen feet away. I thought I saw his hand shaking. I kept saying as calmly as I could, "It's okay. It's okay." The second officer, who had not drawn his weapon, inched cautiously toward me. He stepped on the sidewalk, circled behind my parked car, and came up behind me while the other officer continued to point the gun at me. He grabbed me by the arms and pushed me up against the back of my car. The other officer then lowered his weapon. "What are you doing out here?" said the second officer, who seemed older than the one who had drawn his weapon. He sounded angry. "I live here. I moved into that house down the street just a few months ago. My roommate is inside. You can go ask him." I hated how afraid I sounded and the way my voice was shaking. "What are you doing out in the street?" "I was just listening to the radio." He placed my hands on the car and bent me over the back of the vehicle. The SWAT car's bright spotlight was still focused on me. I noticed people up the block turning on their lights and peering out their front doors. The house next to ours came to life, and a middle-aged white man and woman walked outside and stared at me as I was leaned over the vehicle. The officer holding me asked me for my driver's license, but wouldn't let me move my arms to retrieve it. I told him that it was in my back pocket, and he fished my wallet out from my pants. The other officer was now leaning inside my car and going through my papers. I knew that he had no probable cause to enter my vehicle, and that he was conducting an illegal search. I was about to say something when I saw him open the glove compartment. Opening objects in a parked vehicle was so incredibly illegal that I realized he wasn't paying any attention to the rules. So saying something about it would be pointless. There was nothing interesting in my car. There were no drugs, no alcohol, not even tobacco. I kept a giant-sized bag of peanut M&Ms and bazooka bubble gum in the glove compartment to help stave off hunger when I didn't have time for a meal. There were just a few M&Ms left in the bag, which the officer inspected carefully. He put his nose into the bag before tossing it back. 
I wouldn't be eating those M&Ms. I had not lived at our new address long enough to get a new driver's license, so the address on my license didn't match the new location. There was no legal requirement to update the driver's license, but it prompted the officer to hold me there for another ten minutes while he went back to his car to run a search on me. My neighbors grew bolder as the encounter dragged on. Even though it was late, people were coming out of their homes to watch. I could hear them talking about all the burglaries in the neighborhood. There was a particularly vocal older white woman who loudly demanded that I be questioned about items she was missing. Ask him about my radio and my vacuum cleaner. Another lady asked about her cat who had been absent for three days. I kept waiting for my apartment light to come on and for Charlie to walk outside and help me out. He'd been dating a woman who also worked at legal aid and had been spending a lot of time at her house. It occurred to me that he might not be home. Finally, the officer returned and spoke to his partner. They don't have anything on him. He sounded disappointed. I found my nerve and took my hands off the car. This is so messed up. I live here. You shouldn't have done this. Why did you do this? The older officer frowned at me. Someone called about a suspected burglar. There have been a lot of burglaries in this neighborhood. Then he grinned. We're going to let you go. You should be happy, he said. With that, they walked away, got in their SWAT car, and drove off. The neighbors looked me over one last time before retreating back into their homes. I couldn't decide whether I should race to my door so that they could see that I lived in the neighborhood or wait until they were all gone so that no one would know where the suspected criminal lived. I decided to wait. I gathered up my papers, which the cop had scattered all over the car and onto the sidewalk. I unhappily threw my M&Ms into a trash can on the street and then walked into my apartment. To my great relief, Charlie was there. I woke him to tell the story. They never even apologized, I kept saying. Charlie shared my outrage but soon fell back asleep. I couldn't sleep at all. The next morning I told Steve about the incident. He was furious and urged me to file a complaint with the Atlanta Police Department. Some folks in the office said I should explain in my complaint that I was a civil rights attorney working on police misconduct cases. It seemed to me that no one should need those kinds of credentials to complain about misconduct by police officers. I started writing my complaint determined not to reveal that I was an attorney. When I replayed the whole incident in my mind, what bothered me most was the moment when the officer drew his weapon and I thought about running. I was a 28-year-old lawyer who had worked on police misconduct cases. I had the judgment to speak calmly to the officer when he threatened to shoot me. When I thought about what I would have done when I was 16 years old, or 19, or even 24, I was scared to realize that I might have run. The more I thought about it, the more concerned I became about all the young black boys and men in that neighborhood. Did they know not to run? Did they know to stay calm and say, it's okay? I detailed all of my concerns. I found Bureau of Justice statistics reporting that black men were eight times more likely to be killed by the police than whites. By the end of the 20th century, the rate of police shootings would improve so that men of color were only four times more likely to be killed by law enforcement. But the problem would get worse as some states passed stand-your-ground laws empowering armed citizens to use lethal force as well. 
I kept writing my memo to the Atlanta Police Department, and before I knew it, I had typed close to nine pages outlining all the things I thought had gone wrong. For two pages, I detailed the completely illegal search of the vehicle and the absence of probable cause. I even cited about a half dozen cases. I read over the complaint and realized that I had done everything but say I'm a lawyer. I filed my complaint with the police department and tried to forget about the incident, but I couldn't. I kept thinking about what had happened. I began to feel embarrassed that I hadn't asserted more control during the encounter. I hadn't told the officers I was a lawyer, or informed them that what they were doing was illegal. Should I have said more to them? Despite the work I'd done assisting people on death row, I questioned how prepared I was to do really difficult things. I even started having second thoughts about going to Alabama to start a law office. I couldn't stop thinking about how at risk young kids are when they get stopped by the police. My complaint made it through the review process at the Atlanta Police Department. Every few weeks, I'd get a letter explaining that the police officers had done nothing wrong and that police work is very difficult. I appealed these dismissals unsuccessfully up the chain of command. Finally, I requested a meeting with the chief of police and the police officers who had stopped me. This request was denied, but the deputy chief met with me. I had asked for an apology and suggested training to prevent similar incidents. The deputy chief nodded politely as I explained what had happened. When I finished, he apologized to me, but I suspected that he just wanted me to leave. He promised that the officers would be required to do some extra homework on community relations. I didn't feel vindicated. My caseload was getting crazy. The lawyers defending the Gadsden City Jail finally acknowledged that Mr. Ruffin's rights had been violated and that he had been illegally denied his asthma medicine. We want a decent settlement for Mr. Ruffin's family, so they would at least receive some financial help. I turned the other police misconduct cases over to other lawyers because my death penalty docket was so full. I had no time to make war with the Atlanta police when I had clients facing execution. Still, I couldn't stop thinking about how dangerous and unfair the situation was, and how I'd done nothing wrong. And what if I had had drugs in my car? I would have been arrested, and then would have needed to convince my attorney to believe me when I explained that the police had entered the car illegally. Would I get an attorney who would take such a claim seriously? Would a judge believe that I'd done nothing wrong? Would they believe someone who was just like me but happened not to be a lawyer? Someone like me who was unemployed or had a prior criminal record? I decided to talk to youth groups, churches, and community organizations about the challenges posed by the presumption of guilt assigned to the poor and people of color. I spoke at local meetings and tried to sensitize people to the need to insist on accountability from law enforcement. I argued that police could improve public safety without abusing people. Even when I was in Alabama, I made time for talks at community events whenever anyone asked. I was in a poor rural county in Alabama after another trip to pull records in a death penalty case when I was invited to speak at a small African American church. Only about two dozen people showed up. One of the community leaders introduced me, and I went to the front of the church and began my talk about the death penalty, increasing incarceration rates, abuse of power within prisons. Discriminatory law enforcement, and the need for reform. 
At one point, I decided to talk about my encounter with the police in Atlanta, and I realized that I was getting a bit emotional. My voice got shaky, and I had to rein myself in to finish my remarks. During the talk, I noticed an older black man in a wheelchair who had come in just before the program started. He was in his seventies and wearing an old brown suit. His gray hair was cut short with unruly tufts here and there. He looked at me intensely throughout my presentation, but showed no emotion or reaction during most of the talk. His focused stare was unnerving. A young boy who was about twelve had wheeled him into the church, probably his grandson or a relative. I noticed that the man occasionally directed the boy to fetch things for him. He would wordlessly nod his head, and the boy seemed to know that the man wanted a fan or a hymnal. After I finished speaking, the group sang a hymn to end the session. The older man didn't sing, but simply closed his eyes and sat back in his chair. After the program, people came up to me. Most folks were very kind and expressed appreciation for my having taken the time to come and talk to them. Several young black boys walked up to shake my hand. I was pleased that people seemed to value the information I shared. The man in the wheelchair was waiting in the back of the church. He was still staring at me. When everyone else had left, he nodded to the young boy who quickly wheeled him up to me. The man's expression never changed as he approached me. He stopped in front of me, leaned forward in his wheelchair, and said forcefully, "Do you know what you're doing?" He looked very serious, and he wasn't smiling. His question threw me. I couldn't tell what he was really asking or whether he was being hostile. I didn't know what to say. He then wagged his finger at me and asked again, "Do you know what you're doing?" I tried to smile to diffuse the situation, but I was completely baffled. I think so. He cut me off and said loudly, "I'll tell you what you're doing." You're beating the drum for justice. He had an impassioned look on his face. He said it again emphatically. You've got to beat the drum for justice. He leaned back in his chair, and I stopped smiling. Something about what he said had sobered me. I answered him softly, "Yes, sir." He leaned forward again and said hoarsely, "You've got to keep beating the drum for justice." He gestured, and after a long while, said again, "Beat the drum for justice." He leaned back, and in an instant, he seemed tired and out of breath. He looked at me sympathetically and waved me closer. I did so, and he pulled me by the arm and leaned forward. He spoke very quietly, almost a whisper, but with a fierceness that was unforgettable. "You see this scar on the top of my head?" He tilted his head to show me. I got that scar in Greene County, Alabama, trying to register to vote in 1964. You see this scar on the side of my head? He turned his head to the left, and I saw a four-inch scar just above his right ear. I got that scar in Mississippi, demanding civil rights. His voice grew stronger. He tightened his grip on my arm and lowered his head some more. You see that mark? There was a dark circle at the base of his skull. I got that bruise in Birmingham after the Children's Crusade. He leaned back and looked at me intensely. People think these are my scars, cuts, and bruises. For the first time, I noticed that his eyes were wet with tears. He placed his hands on his head. These aren't my scars, cuts, and bruises. These are my medals of honor.
He stared at me for a long moment, wiped his eyes, and nodded to the boy who wheeled him away. I stood there with a lump in my throat staring after him. After a moment, I realized that the time to open the Alabama office had come. Chapter 3 Trials and Tribulation After months of frustration, failure, and growing public scorn, Sheriff Thomas Tate, ABI Lead Investigator Simon Benson, and the District Attorney's Investigator Larry Eichner decided to arrest Walter McMillan based primarily on Ralph Meyer's allegation. They hadn't yet done much investigation into McMillan, so they decided to arrest him on a pretextual charge while they built their case. Myers claimed to be terrified of McMillan. One of the officers suggested to Myers that McMillan might have sexually assaulted him. The idea was so provocative and inflammatory that Myers immediately recognized its usefulness and somberly acknowledged that it was true. Alabama law had outlawed non-procreative sex, so officials planned to arrest McMillan on sodomy charges. On June 7, 1987, Sheriff Tate led an army of more than a dozen officers to a backcountry road that they knew Walter would use on his return home from work. Officers stopped Walter's truck and drew their weapons, then forced Walter from his vehicle and surrounded him. Tate told him he was under arrest. When Walter frantically asked the sheriff what he had done, the sheriff told him that he was being charged with sodomy. Confused by the term, Walter told the sheriff that he did not understand the meaning of the word. When the sheriff explained the charge in crude terms, Walter was incredulous and couldn't help but laugh at the notion. This provoked Tate, who unleashed a torrent of racial slurs and threats. Walter would report for years that all he heard throughout his arrest over and over again was the word nigger. Nigger this, nigger that, followed by insults and threats of lynching. We're going to keep all you niggers from running around with these white girls. I ought to take you off and hang you like we done that nigger in Mobile, Tate reportedly told Walter. The sheriff was referring to the lynching of a young African-American man named Michael Donald in Mobile, about 60 miles south. Donald was walking home from the store one evening, hours after a mistrial was declared in the prosecution of a black man accused of shooting a white police officer. Many white people were shocked by the verdict and blamed the mistrial on the African-Americans who had been permitted to serve on the jury. After burning a cross on the courthouse lawn, a group of enraged white men who were members of the Ku Klux Klan went out searching for someone to victimize. They found Donald as he was walking home and descended on him. After severely beating the young black man, they hanged him from a nearby tree, where his lifeless body was discovered several hours later. Local police ignored the obvious evidence that the death was a hate crime and hypothesized that Donald must have been involved in drug dealing which his mother adamantly denied. Outraged by the lack of local law enforcement interest in the case, the black community and civil rights activists persuaded the United States Department of Justice to get involved. Three white men were arrested two years later, and details of the lynching were finally made public. It had been more than three years since the arrests, but when Tate and the other officers started making threats of lynching, Walter was terrified. He was also confused. They said he was being arrested for raping another man, but they were throwing questions at him about the murder of Rhonda Morrison. Walter vehemently denied both allegations. 
When it became clear that the officers would get no help from Walter in making a case against him, they locked him up and proceeded with their investigation. When Monroe County District Attorney Ted Pearson first heard his investigators' evidence against Walter McMillan, he must have been disappointed. Ralph Myers' story of the crime was pretty far-fetched. His knack for dramatic embellishment made even the most basic allegations unnecessarily complicated. Here's Myers' account of the murder of Rhonda Morrison. On the day of the murder, Myers was getting gas when Walter McMillan saw him at the gas station and forced him at gunpoint to get in Walter's truck and drive to Monroeville. Myers didn't really know Walter before that day. Once in the truck, Walter told Myers he needed him to drive because Walter's arm was hurt. Myers protested but had no choice. Walter directed Myers to drive him to Jackson Cleaners in downtown Monroeville and instructed him to wait in the truck while McMillan went inside alone. After waiting a long time, Myers drove down the street to a grocery store to buy cigarettes. He returned ten minutes later. After another long wait, Myers finally saw McMillan emerge from the store and return to the truck. Upon entering the truck, he admitted that he had killed the store clerk. Myers then drove McMillan back to the gas station so that Myers could retrieve his vehicle. Before Myers left, Walter threatened to kill him if he ever told anybody what he had seen or done. In summary, an African-American man planning a robbery murder in the heart of Monroeville in the middle of the day stops at a gas station and randomly selects a white man to become his accomplice by asking him to drive him to and from the crime scene because his arm is injured even though he had been able to drive himself to the gas station where he encountered Myers and to drive his truck home after returning Myers to the gas station. Law enforcement officers knew that Myers' story would be very difficult to prove, so they arrested Walter for sodomy, which served to shock the community and further demonize McMillan. It also gave police an opportunity to bring Walter's truck to the jail for Bill Hooks, a jailhouse informant, to see. Bill Hooks was a young black man with a reputation as a jailhouse snitch. He'd been in the county jail for several days on burglary charges when McMillan was arrested. Hooks was promised release from jail and reward money if he could connect McMillan's truck to the Morrison murder. Hooks eagerly told investigators that he had driven by Jackson Cleaners near the time of the crime and had seen a truck tear away from the cleaners with two men inside. At the jail... Hooks positively identified Walter's truck as the one he'd seen at the cleaners nearly six months earlier. This second witness gave law enforcement officials what they needed to charge Walter McMillan with capital murder and the shooting death of Rhonda Morrison. When the indictment was announced, there was joy and relief in the community that someone had been charged. Sheriff Tate, the district attorney, and other law enforcement officers who had become targets of criticism were cheered. The absence of an arrest had disrupted life in Monroeville, and now things could settle down. People who knew Walter found it difficult to believe he could be responsible for a sensational murder. He had no history of crime or violence, and for most folks who knew him, robbery just didn't make sense for a man who worked as hard as Walter. Black residents told Sheriff Tate that he had arrested the wrong man. Tate still had not investigated McMillan himself, his life or background, or even his whereabouts on the day of the murder. He knew about the affair with Karen Kelly and had heard the suspicion and rumors that Walter's independence must mean he was dealing drugs. Given his eagerness to make an arrest, 
This seemed to be enough for Tate to accept Meyer's accusations. As it turned out, on the day of the murder, a fish fry was held at Walter's house. Members of Walter's family spent the day out in front of the house selling food to passersby. Evelyn Smith, Walter's sister, was a local minister, and she and her family occasionally raised money for the church by selling food on the roadside. Because Walter's house was closer to the main road, they often sold from his front yard. There were at least a dozen church parishioners at the house all morning with Walter and his family on the day Rhonda Morrison was murdered. Walter didn't have a tree job that day. He had decided to replace the transmission in his truck and called over his mechanic friend, Jimmy Hunter, to help. By 9.30 in the morning, the two men had dismantled Walter's truck, completely removing the transmission. By 11 o'clock, relatives had arrived and had started frying fish and other food to sell. Some church members didn't get there until later. Sister, we would have been here long ago, but the traffic in Monroeville was completely backed up. Cop cars and fire trucks looked like something bad happened up at that cleaners, Evelyn Smith recalled one of the members saying. Police reported that the Morrison murder took place around 10.15 a.m., 11 miles or so from McMillan's home, at the same time that a dozen church members were at Walter's home selling food while Walter and Jimmy worked on his truck. In the early afternoon, Ernest Welch, a white man whom black residents called the Furniture Man because he worked for a local furniture store, arrived to collect money from Walter's mother for a purchase she had made on credit. Welch told the folks gathered at the house that his niece had been murdered at Jackson Cleaners that morning. They discussed the shocking news with Welch for some time. Taking into account the church members, Walter's family, and the people who were constantly stopping at the house to buy sandwiches, dozens of people were able to confirm that Walter could not have committed the murder. That group included a police officer who stopped by the house to buy a sandwich and noted in his police log that he had bought food at McMillan's house with Walter and a crowd of church folks present. Based on their personal knowledge of Walter's whereabouts at the time of the Morrison murder, family members, church members, black pastors, and others all pleaded with Sheriff Tate to release McMillan. Tate wouldn't do it. The arrest had been too long in the making to admit yet another failure. After some discussion, the district attorney, the sheriff, and the ABI investigator agreed to stick with the McMillan accusation. Walter's alibi wasn't the only problem for law enforcement. Ralph Myers began to have second thoughts about his allegations against McMillan. He was also facing indictment in the Morrison murder. He'd been promised that he wouldn't get the death penalty and would get favorable treatment in exchange for his testimony but it was starting to dawn on him that admitting to involvement in a high-profile murder that he actually had nothing to do with was probably not smart. A few days before the capital murder charges against McMillan were made public, Myers summoned police investigators and told them his allegations against McMillan weren't true. At this point, Tate and his investigators had little interest in Myers' recantation. Instead, they decided to pressure Myers to produce more incriminating details— when Myers protested that he didn't have more incriminating details because, well, the story wasn't true, the investigators weren't having it. It's not clear who decided to put both Myers and McMillan on death row before trial to create additional pressure, but it was merely an unprecedented maneuver that proved very effective. It is illegal to subject pretrial detainees like Walter and Myers to confinement that constitutes punishment. 
Pre-trial detainees are generally housed in local jails, where they enjoy more privileges and more latitude than convicted criminals who are sent to prison. Putting someone who has not yet been tried in a prison reserved for convicted felons is almost never done, as is putting someone not yet convicted of a crime on death row. Even the other death row prisoners were shocked. Death row is the most restrictive punitive confinement permitted. Prisoners are locked in a small cell by themselves for 23 hours a day. Condemned inmates have limited opportunity for exercise or visitation, and are held in disturbingly close proximity to the electric chair. Sheriff Tate drove Walter to Holman Correctional Facility, a short ride away in Atmore, Alabama. Before the trip, the sheriff again threatened Walter with racial slurs and terrifying plans. It's unclear how Tate was able to persuade Holman's warden to house two pre-trial detainees on death row, although Tate knew people at the prison from his days as a probation officer. The transfer of Myers and McMillan from the county jail to death row took place on August one, nineteen eighty-seven, less than a month before the scheduled execution of Wayne Ritter. When Walter McMillan arrived on Alabama's death row, just ten years after the modern death penalty was reinstituted, an entire community of condemned men awaited him. Most of the hundred or so death row prisoners who had been sentenced to execution in Alabama since capital punishment was restored in 1975 were black, although to Walter's surprise, nearly 40 percent of them were white. Everyone was poor, and everyone asked him why he was there. Condemned prisoners on Alabama's death row unit are housed in windowless concrete buildings that are notoriously hot and uncomfortable. Each death row inmate was placed in a five by eight foot cell with a metal door, a commode, and a steel bunk. The temperatures in August consistently reached over 100 degrees for days and sometimes weeks at a time. Incarcerated men would trap rats, poisonous spiders. And snakes they found inside the prison to pass the time and to keep safe, isolated and remote. Most prisoners got few visits and even fewer privileges. Existence at Holman centered on Alabama's electric chair. The large wooden chair was built in the 1930s, and inmates had painted it yellow before attaching its leather straps and electrodes. They called it Yellow Mama. The executions at Holman resumed just a few years before Walter arrived. John Evans and Arthur Jones had recently been electrocuted in Holman's execution chamber. Russ Cannon, an attorney with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee in Atlanta, had volunteered to represent Evans. Evans filmed what became an after-school special for kids, where he shared the story of his life with schoolchildren and urged them to avoid the mistakes he had made. After courts refused to block the Evans execution, following multiple appeals, Cannon went to the prison to witness the execution at Evans' request. It was worse than Russ could have ever imagined. He later filed a much-reviewed affidavit describing the entire horrific process. At 8:30 p.m., the first jolt of 1,900 volts of electricity passed through Mr. Evans' body. It lasted 30 seconds. Sparks and flames erupted from the electrode tied to Mr. Evans' left leg. His body slammed against the straps holding him in the electric chair, and his fist clenched permanently. The electrode apparently burst from the strap holding it in place. 
A large puff of grayish smoke and sparks poured out from under the hood that covered Mr. Evans' face. An overpowering stench of burnt flesh and clothing began pervading the witness room. Two doctors examined Mr. Evans and declared that he was not dead. The electrode on the left leg was refastened. A few minutes later, Mr. Evans was administered a second thirty-second jolt of electricity. The stench of burning flesh was nauseating. More smoke emanated from his leg and head. Again, the doctors examined Mr. Evans. The doctors reported that his heart was still beating and that he was still alive. At that time, I asked the prison commissioner who was communicating on an open telephone line to Governor George Wallace to grant clemency on the grounds that Mr. Evans was being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. The request for clemency was denied. At 8:40 p.m., a third charge of electricity, 30 seconds in duration, was passed through Mr. Evans' body. At 8:44, the doctors pronounced him dead. The execution of John Evans took 14 minutes. Walter McMillan knew nothing about any of this before he arrived at Holman, but with another scheduled execution fast approaching, condemned prisoners were talking about the electric chair constantly when Walter arrived. For his first three weeks on Alabama's death row, the horrific execution of John Evans was pretty much all he heard about. The surreal whirlwind of the preceding weeks had left Walter devastated. After living his whole life free and unrestrained by anyone or anything, he found himself confined and threatened in a way he could never have imagined. The intense rage of the arresting officers and the racist taunts and threats from uniformed police officers. Who did not know him were shocking. He saw in the people who arrested him and processed him at the courthouse, even in other inmates at the jail, a contempt that he'd never experienced before. He'd always been well liked and gotten along with just about everybody. He genuinely believed the accusations against him had been a serious misunderstanding, and that once officials talked to his family to confirm his alibi, he'd be released in a couple of days. When the days turned into weeks, Walter began to sink into a deep despair. His family assured him that the police would soon let him go, but nothing happened. His body reacted to the shock of his situation. A lifelong smoker, Walter tried to smoke to calm his nerves, but at home and he found the experience of smoking nauseating, and he quit immediately. For days he couldn't taste anything he ate. He couldn't orient or calm himself. When he woke each morning, he would feel normal for a few minutes and then sink into terror upon remembering where he was. Prison officials had shaved his head and all the hair from his face. Looking in a mirror, he didn't recognize himself. The county jails where Walter had been housed before his transfer were awful, but the small, hot prison cell on Holman's death row was far worse. He was used to working outside among the trees with the scent of fresh pine on the cool breeze. Now he found himself staring at the bleak walls of death row. Fear and anguish, unlike anything he'd ever experienced, settled on Walter. Death row prisoners were constantly advising him, but he had no way of knowing whom to believe. The judge had earlier appointed an attorney to represent him, a white man Walter didn't trust. His family raised money to hire the only black criminal lawyers in the region, J. L. Chestnut and Bruce Boynton from Selma. Chestnut was fiery, 
and had done a lot of work in the black community to enforce civil rights. Boynton's mother, Amelia Boynton Robinson, was a legendary activist. Boynton himself had strong civil rights credentials as well. Despite their collective experience, Chestnut and Boynton failed to persuade local officials to release Walter and couldn't prevent his transfer to Holman. If anything, hiring outside lawyers seemed to provoke Monroe County officials even more. On the trip to Holman, Tate was furious that McMillan had involved outside counsel. He mocked Walter for thinking it would make any difference. Although the money to hire Chestnut and Boynton was raised by family members through church donations and by pawning their meager possessions, local law enforcement interpreted it as evidence of Walter's secret money hoard and double life, confirmation that he wasn't the innocent black man he pretended to be. Walter tried to adjust to Holman, but things only got worse. With a scheduled execution approaching, people on the row were agitated and angry. Other prisoners had advised him to take action and file a federal complaint since he couldn't legally be held on death row. When Walter, who could barely read or write, failed to file the various pleadings, writs, motions, and lawsuits the other prisoners had advised him to file, they blamed him for his predicament. Fight for yourself. Don't trust your lawyer. They can't put you on death row without being convicted. Walter heard this constantly, but he couldn't imagine how to file a pleading in court himself. There were days when I couldn't breathe, Walter recalled later. I hadn't ever experienced anything like this before in my life. I was around all these murderers, and yet it felt like sometimes they were the only ones trying to help me. I prayed. I read the Bible. I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that I was scared terrified just about every day. Ralph Myers was faring no better. He had also been charged with capital murder in the death of Rhonda Morrison, and his refusal to continue cooperating with law enforcement meant that he was sent to death row too. He was placed on a different tier to prevent contact with McMillan. Whatever advantage Myers thought he could gain by saying he knew something about the Morrison murder was clearly gone now. He was depressed and sinking deeper into an emotional crisis. From the time he was burned as a child, he had always feared fire, heat, and small spaces. As the prisoners talked more and more about the details of the Evans execution and Wayne Ritter's impending execution, Myers became more and more distraught. On the night of the Ritter execution, Myers was in full crisis, sobbing in his cell. There is a tradition on death row in Alabama that at the time scheduled for the execution, the condemned prisoners bang on their cell doors with cups in protest. At midnight, while all the other prisoners banged away, Myers curled up on the floor in the corner of his cell, hyperventilating and flinching with each clang he heard. When the stench of burned flesh that many on the row claimed they could smell during the execution wafted into his cell, Myers dissolved. He called Tate the next morning and told him that he would say whatever he wanted if he would get him off death row. Tate initially justified keeping Myers and McMillan on death row for safety reasons, but Tate immediately picked Myers up and brought him back to the county jail the day after the Ritter execution. Tate didn't appear to discuss with anyone the decision to move Myers off death row. Ordinarily, the Alabama Department of Corrections couldn't just put people on death row or let them off without court orders or legal filings, and certainly no prison warden could do so on his own. 
but nothing about the prosecution of Walter McMillan was turning out to be ordinary. Once removed from death row and back in Monroe County, Myers affirmed his initial accusations against McMillan. With Myers back as the primary witness and Bill Hooks ready to say that he saw Walter's truck at the crime scene, the district attorney believed that he could proceed against McMillan. The case was scheduled for trial in February 1988. Ted Pearson had been the district attorney for nearly 20 years. He and his family had lived in South Alabama for generations. He knew the local customs, values, and traditions well, and he had put them to good use in the courtroom. He was getting older and had plans to retire soon, but he hated that his office had been criticized for failing to solve the Morrison murder more quickly. Pearson was determined to leave office with a victory and likely saw the prosecution of Walt McMillan as one of the most important cases of his career. In 1987, all 40 elected district attorneys in Alabama were white, even though there are 16 majority black counties in the state. When African Americans began to exercise their right to vote in the 1970s, there was deep concern among some prosecutors and judges about how the racial demographics in some counties would complicate their reelections. Legislators had aligned counties to maintain white majorities for judicial circuits that included a majority black county. Still, Pearson had to be more mindful of the concerns of black residents than at the beginning of his career, even if that mindfulness didn't translate into any substantive changes during his tenure. Like Tate, Pearson had heard from many black residents that they believed Walter McMillan was innocent. But Pearson was confident he could win a guilty verdict despite the suspect testimony of Ralph Myers and Bill Hooks and the strong doubts in the black community. His one lingering concern may have been a recent United States Supreme Court case that threatened a long-standing feature of high-profile criminal trials in the South, the all-white jury. When a serious felony case went to trial in a county like Monroe County, which was 40% black, it was not uncommon for prosecutors to exclude all African Americans from jury service. In fact, 20 years after the Civil Rights Revolution, the jury remained an institution largely unchanged by the legal requirements of racial integration and diversity. As far back as the 1880s, the Supreme Court ruled in Strouder v. West Virginia that excluding black people from jury service was unconstitutional, but juries remained all white for decades afterward. In 1945, the Supreme Court upheld a Texas statute that limited the number of black jurors to exactly one per case. In Deep South states, jury rolls were pulled from voting rolls, which excluded African Americans. After the Voting Rights Act passed, court clerks and judges still kept the jury rolls mostly white through various tactics designed to undermine the law. Local jury commissions used statutory requirements that jurors be intelligent and upright to exclude African Americans and women. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court ruled that underrepresentation of racial minorities and women in jury pools was unconstitutional, which in some communities at least led to black people being summoned to the courthouse for possible selection as jurors, if not selected. The court had repeatedly made clear, though, that the Constitution does not require that racial minorities and women actually serve on juries. It only forbids excluding jurors on the basis of race or gender. For many African Americans, the use of wholly discretionary peremptory strikes to select a jury of 12 remained a serious barrier to serving on a jury. 
In the mid-1960s, the court held that using peremptory strikes in a racially discriminatory manner was unconstitutional, but the justices created an evidentiary standard for proving racial bias that was so high that no one had successfully challenged peremptory strikes in 20 years. The practice of striking all or almost all African-American potential jurors continued virtually unchanged after the court's ruling. So, defendants like Walter McMillan, even in counties that were 40 or 50 percent black, frequently found themselves staring at all-white juries, especially in death penalty cases. Then in 1986, the Supreme Court ruled in Batson v. Kentucky that prosecutors could be challenged more directly about using peremptory strikes in a racially discriminatory manner, giving hope to black defendants and forcing prosecutors to find more creative ways to exclude black jurors. Walter was learning some of this history as the months passed. Everyone on death row wanted to advise him, and everyone had a story to tell. The novelty of a pretrial capital defendant on death row seemed to motivate other prisoners to get in Walter's ear every day. Walter tried to listen politely, but he'd already decided to leave the lawyering to his lawyers. That didn't mean he wasn't very concerned about what he was hearing from folks on the row, especially about race and the kind of jury he would get. Nearly everyone on death row had been tried by an all-white or nearly all-white jury. Death row prisoner Jesse Morrison told Walter that his prosecutor in Barber County had used 21 out of 22 peremptory strikes to exclude all the black people in the jury pool. Vernon Madison from Mobile said the prosecutor struck all 10 black people qualified for jury service in his case. Willie Tab from Lamar County, Willie Williams from Houston County, Claude Raines from Jefferson County, Gregory Akers from Montgomery County, and Neil Owens from Russell County were among the many black men on death row who had been tried by all-white juries after prosecutors struck all of the African-American prospective jurors. Earl McGahee was tried by an all-white jury in Dallas County, even though the county is 60% African-American. In Albert Jefferson's case, the prosecutor had organized the list of prospective jurors summoned to court into four groups of roughly 25 people each, identified as strong, medium, weak, and black. All 26 black people in the jury pool could be found on the blacklist, and the prosecutors excluded them all. Joe Duncan, Grady Bankhead, and Colin Guthrie were among some of the white condemned prisoners who told a similar story. District Attorney Ted Pearson had to be concerned about the new Batson decision. He knew veteran civil rights lawyers like Chestnut and Boynton would not hesitate to object to racially discriminatory jury selection, even though he wasn't too worried about Judge Robert E. Lee Key taking those objections seriously. But the extraordinary publicity surrounding the Morrison murder gave Pearson another idea. In high-profile cases, it's fairly standard for defense lawyers to file a motion to change venue, to move the case from the county where the crime took place to a different county where there is less pretrial publicity and sentiment to convict. The motions are almost never granted, but every now and then an appellate court finds that the atmosphere in a county had been so prejudicial that the trial should have been moved. In Alabama, asking to change venue was an essentially futile act. Alabama courts had almost never reversed a conviction because the trial judge had refused to change venue. When the court scheduled a hearing in October 1987 on pretrial motions in Walter's case, Chestnut and Boynton showed up with no expectation that any of their motions would be granted. 
they were more focused on preparing for trial, which was scheduled to begin in February 1988. The pretrial motion hearing was a formality. Chestnut and Boynton presented their change of venue motion. Pearson stood up and said that due to the extraordinary pretrial coverage of the Morrison murder, he agreed that the trial should be moved. Judge Key nodded sympathetically. Chestnut, who knew his way around the Alabama courts, was sure something bad was about to happen. He was also certain the judge and the DA had already conspired. The defendant's motion to change venue is granted, the judge ruled. When the judge suggested that it be moved to a neighboring county so that witnesses wouldn't have far to travel, Chestnut remained hopeful. Almost all of the bordering counties had fairly large African American populations. Wilcox County was 72% black, Conecuh County was 46% black, Clark County was 45% black, Butler County 42%, Escambia was 32% black. Only affluent Baldwin County to the south, with its beautiful Gulf of Mexico beaches, was atypical, with an African American population of just 9%. The judge took very little time deciding where the trial should be moved. We'll go to Baldwin County! Chestnut and Boynton immediately complained, but the judge reminded them it was their motion. When they sought to withdraw the motion, the judge said he couldn't authorize a trial in a community where so many people had formed opinions about the accused. The case would be tried in Bay Manette, the seat of Baldwin County. The change of venue was disastrous for Walter. Chestnut and Boynton knew there would be very few, if any, black jurors. They also understood that while jurors from Baldwin County might be less personally connected to Rhonda Morrison and her family, it was an extremely conservative county that had made even less progress leaving behind the racial politics of Jim Crow than its neighbors. Given what he'd heard from other death row prisoners about all-white juries, Walter worried about the venue change as well. But he still put his faith in this fact. No one could hear the evidence and believe that he committed this crime. He just didn't believe that a jury, black or white, could convict him on the nonsensical story told by Ralph Myers, not when he had an unquestionable alibi with close to a dozen witnesses. The February trial was postponed. Once again, Ralph Myers was having second thoughts. After months in the county jail, away from death row, Myers again realized he didn't want to implicate himself in a murder that he had not committed. He waited until the morning that the trial was set to begin before he told investigators that he could not testify, because what they wanted him to say was not true. He tried to wrangle for more favorable treatment, but decided that there was no punishment he was willing to accept for a murder that he hadn't committed. Myers' refusal to cooperate got him sent back to death row. Back at Holman, it wasn't long before he again showed serious emotional and psychological distress. After a couple of weeks, prison officials were so concerned that they sent him to the state hospital for the mentally ill. The Taylor Hardin Secure Medical Facility in Tuscaloosa did all of the diagnostic and assessment work for courts managing people accused of crimes who might be incompetent to stand trial due to mental illness. It had frequently been criticized by defense lawyers for almost never finding serious mental disabilities that would prevent defendants from going to trial. Meyer's time at Taylor Hardin did very little to change his predicament. He hoped that he might be returned to the county jail after his 30-day stint at the hospital, but instead he was returned to death row. 
realizing he could not escape the situation he'd created for himself, Myers told investigators he was ready to testify against McMillan. A new trial date was scheduled for August 1988. Walter had been on death row for over a year. As hard as he had tried to adjust, he couldn't accept the nightmare his life had become. Although he was nervous, he'd been convinced that he was going home back in February when the first trial was scheduled. His lawyer seemed happy that Myers was struggling and told Walter it was a good sign when the trial was continued because Myers refused to testify. But it meant another six months on death row for Walter, and he couldn't see anything encouraging about that. When they finally moved him to the Baldwin County Jail in Baymanette for the August trial, Walter left death row confident he'd never return. He had become friends with several men on the row, and he was surprised by how conflicted he felt about leaving them, knowing what they would soon face. Yet when they called his name to the transfer office, he lost no time gathering his things and getting in the van to leave. A week later, Walter sat in the van with shackles pinching his ankles and chains tightly wound around his waist. He could feel his feet beginning to swell because the circulation was cut off by the metal digging into his skin. The handcuffs were too tight, and he was becoming uncharacteristically angry. Why you got these chains on me this tight? The two Baldwin County deputies who had picked him up a week earlier had not been friendly on the trip from death row to the courthouse. Now that he had been convicted of capital murder, they were downright hostile. One seemed to laugh in response to Walter's question. Them chains is the same as they were when we picked you up. They just feel tighter because we got you now. You need to loosen this man. I can't ride like this. It ain't going to happen, so you should get your mind off it. Walter suddenly recognized the man. At the end of the trial, when the jury had found Walter guilty, his family and several of the black people who had attended the trial were in shocked disbelief. Sheriff Tate claimed that Walter's 24-year-old son, Johnny, said, Somebody's going to pay for what they've done to my father. Tate asked deputies to arrest Johnny, and there was a scuffle. Walter saw the officers wrestle his child to the ground and place him in handcuffs. The more he looked at the two deputies driving him back to death row, the more convinced he became that one of them had tackled his son. The van began to move. They wouldn't tell Walter where he was going, but as soon as they got on the road, it was clear that they were taking him back to death row. He had been upset and distraught on the day of his arrest, but he was so sure he'd be released soon. He got frustrated when the days turned into weeks at the county jail. He was depressed and terrified when they took him to death row before trial, before being convicted of any crime, and the weeks became months. But when the nearly all-white jury pronounced him guilty... After 15 months of waiting for vindication, he was shocked, paralyzed. Now he felt himself coming back to life, but all he could feel was seething anger. The deputies were driving him back to death row and talking about a gun show they were planning to attend. Walter realized that he had been foolish to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. He knew Tate was vicious and no good, but he assumed that the others were just doing what they'd been told— now he was feeling something that could only be described as rage. Hey, I'm going to sue all of y'all. He knew he was screaming and that it wasn't going to make any difference. I'm going to sue all of y'all, he repeated. The officers paid him no attention. Loose these chains! Loose these chains! He couldn't remember when he'd last lost control, but he felt himself falling apart. 
With some struggle, he became silent. Thoughts of the trial flew back into his mind. It had been short, methodical, and clinical. Jury selection lasted just a few hours. Pearson used his peremptory strikes to exclude all but one of the handful of African Americans who had been summoned to serve on the jury. His lawyers objected, but the judge summarily dismissed their complaints. The state put Myers on the stand to tell his absurd story about Walter forcing him to drive to Jackson Cleaners because his arm hurt. This version had Myers going into the cleaners, where he saw Walter standing over the dead body of Rhonda Morrison. Bizarrely, he also claimed that a third person was present and involved in the murder, a mysterious white man with salt and pepper hair who was clearly in charge of the crime and who directed Walter to kill Myers too. But Walter couldn't because he was out of bullets. Walter thought the testimony was so nonsensical he couldn't believe that people were taking it seriously. Why wasn't everyone laughing? Chestnut's cross-examination of Myers made it clear that the witness was lying. When Chestnut finished, Walter was sure that the state would simply announce that they had made a mistake. Instead, the prosecutor brought Myers back up to repeat his accusations as if the logic and contradictions in the testimony were completely irrelevant, as if repeating his lies enough times in this quiet room would make them true. Bill Hooks testified that he'd seen Walter's truck pull out of the cleaners at the time of the murder and that he recognized the truck because it had been modified as a lowrider. Walter instantly whispered to his lawyers that he hadn't turned his truck into a lowrider until several months after Morrison was murdered. His lawyers didn't do much with that information, which frustrated Walter. Then another white man Walter had never heard of, Joe Hightower, took the stand and said that he had seen the truck at the cleaners, too. There were a dozen people who could talk about the fish fry and insist that Walter was at home when Rhonda Morrison was killed. His lawyers called only three of them. Everybody seemed to be rushing to get the trial over with, and Walter couldn't understand it. The state then called a white man, Ernest Welch, who said he was the furniture man who collected money at the McMillan house on the day they were having a fish fry but it wasn't the same day that Rhonda Morrison was murdered. He said he remembered better than anyone when she was murdered because he was her uncle. He said that he had been so devastated that he went to the McMillan residence to collect money on a different day. The lawyers made their arguments, the jury retired, and less than three hours later they filed back into the courtroom. Stone-faced, one by one, they pronounced Walter McMillan guilty. Chapter 4 The Old Rugged Cross In February 1989, Eva Ansley and I opened our new nonprofit law center in Tuscaloosa, dedicated to providing free, quality legal services to condemned men and women on death row in Alabama. We never thought it would be easy, but it turned out to be even harder than we had expected. In the first few months of operation, our first director resigned. The University of Alabama School of Law, where we had set up the office, withdrew their support and promise of office space, and we discovered just how hard it was to find lawyers to come to Alabama and do full-time death penalty work for less than $25,000 a year. Obstacles were multiplying rapidly. We were denied funding from the state legislature, which we needed to get federal matching dollars. After several disheartening meetings with our board, 
it had become clear that we had no support in the state for the project. State bar leaders were committed to seeing our operation succeed, some because they felt it was unacceptable that condemned prisoners could not obtain legal assistance, others because they wanted more executions at a faster pace, and felt that the absence of counsel was slowing them down. But we now realized that we would have to do it on our own and raise the money ourselves. Eva and I regrouped and decided to start again in Montgomery, the state capital. The project would eventually be named the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI. I found a small building near downtown Montgomery, and in the summer of 1989, we signed a lease. The building was a good start a rented two story Greek revival house built in 1882, near the historic district called Old Alabama Town. It was painted yellow and had a charming porch that made it feel open and welcoming, a nice contrast from the daunting courtrooms, institutional waiting rooms, and prison walls that define so much of the lives of our clients' family members. The office was cold in the winter, it was almost impossible to keep squirrels out of the attic, and there wasn't enough electricity to run the copier and a coffee pot at the same time without blowing a fuse. But from the start, it felt like a home. And a place to work. And given the hours we would spend there, it was always a little of both. Eva took on administrative duties for our new project, which were pretty challenging given that federal dollars came with all kinds of complex reporting and accounting requirements. Eva was fearless and smart, and she sorted everything out so that a few dollars could trickle in. We hired a receptionist and tried to figure out how to survive. I had worked on fundraising for the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee almost as soon as I started there, so I had some experience asking for money to support our work. I was sure there would be a way to raise enough for the new Alabama office to meet the minimum federal matching requirements. We just needed some time. Something, as it turned out, we wouldn't get at all. A flood of execution dates awaited us. Between the passage of Alabama's new death penalty statute in 1975, And the end of 1988, there had been only three executions in Alabama. But in 1989, driven by a change in the Supreme Court's treatment of death penalty appeals and shifts in the political winds, the Attorney General's office began vigorously seeking executions of condemned prisoners. By the end of 1989, the number of people executed by the state of Alabama would double. Months before our center opened, I started visiting Alabama's death row every month, traveling from Atlanta to see a handful of new clients, including Walter McMillan. They were all grateful for the help, but as the spring of 1989 approached, they all made the same request at the end of our meetings Help Michael Lindsay. Lindsay's execution was scheduled for May 1989. Later, they would ask me to help Horace Duncan's. Whose execution was scheduled for July 1989. I painfully explained the constraints on resources and time, telling them how frantic we were just trying to get the new office up and running. Although they said they understood, they were clearly anguished about getting legal assistance while other men faced looming executions. Both Lindsay and Duncan's had volunteer lawyers who had reached out to me for help because they were overwhelmed. Lindsay's lawyer, David Bagwell, was a respected civil attorney from Mobile. He had worked on the case of Wayne Ritter, who had been executed a year earlier. That experience left Bagwell disillusioned and angry. He wrote a scathing letter, published in the State Bar Association's journal, 
in which he vowed never to take another death penalty case, even if they disbar me for my refusal, and urged other civil lawyers not to take death penalty cases. Bagwell's public complaints made it hard for courts to appoint other civil lawyers for last-stage appeals in a death penalty case, not that they were particularly inclined to do so. But it had another effect as well. Prisoners got word of the letter and talked about it among themselves, especially about a chilling comment buried in Bagwell's Jeremy. I generally favor the death penalty because mad dogs ought to die. The prisoners became even more distrustful of lawyers, even the ones who claimed they would help. After further pleading by our other clients, we decided to do what we could for Michael Lindsay, whose execution date was fast approaching. We tried to make arguments about an interesting twist in that case. His jury had never decided that Michael Lindsay should be executed at all. Lindsay received a sentence of life imprisonment without parole from his jury, but the judge had overridden it and imposed a death sentence on his own. Death sentences resulting from judge override were an anomaly, even back in 1989. In almost every state, juries made the decision to impose the death penalty or life in prison without parole. If the jury imposed or rejected death, that was the final judgment. Only Florida and Alabama allowed the jury's decision to be overridden by a judge, and Florida later put restrictions on the practice that severely curtailed it. It remains the law in Alabama where judges almost exclusively use this power to turn life sentences into death sentences, although they're also authorized to reduce death verdicts to life if they so choose. Since 1976, Judges in Alabama have overridden jury sentencing verdicts in capital cases 111 times. In 91% of these cases, judges replaced life verdicts from juries with death sentences. The practice has been further complicated by the increasingly competitive nature of judicial elections in the state. Alabama elects all of its judges in highly competitive, partisan elections, one of only six states to do so. 32 states have some form of nonpartisan judicial election process. The elections attract campaign contributions from business interests seeking tort reform or from trial lawyers who want to protect large civil verdicts. But since most voters are unschooled in these areas, the campaigns invariably focus on crime and punishment. Each judge competes to be the toughest on crime. The people financing these elections are largely unconcerned with whatever modest differences exist between candidates on crime, but punishment gets the votes. Judge overrides are an incredibly potent political tool. No judge wants to deal with attack ads that highlight the grisly details of a murder case in which the judge failed to impose the most severe punishment. Seen in that light, it's not surprising that judge overrides tend to increase in election years. We wrote a letter to the governor of Alabama, Guy Hunt, asking him to stop the Lindsay execution on the grounds that the jury, empowered to pass judgment on him, had decided against putting him to death. Governor Hunt quickly denied our request for clemency, declaring that he would not go against the wishes of the community expressed by the jury that Mr. Lindsay be put to death, even though we stressed that the community's representatives, the jury, had done the opposite. It clearly elected to spare Lindsay's life. It didn't matter. As peculiar as the practice is, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld judicial override in an earlier Florida case, 
which left us with no constitutional basis to block Michael Lindsay's execution. He was electrocuted on May 26, 1989. Immediately after Lindsay, we were faced with Horace Duncan's execution date. Once again, we tried to help in whatever ways we could, even though time was quickly running out and there was little hope. Mr. Duncan suffered from intellectual disabilities, and the trial judge had found he had mental retardation based on his school records and earlier testing. Just a few months before his execution was scheduled, the Supreme Court upheld the practice of executing the mentally retarded. Thirteen years later, in Atkins v. Virginia, the court recognized that executing people with intellectual disabilities is cruel and unusual punishment and banned the practice as unconstitutional. For many condemned and disabled people like Horace Duncan's, the ban came too late. The Duncan's family called frequently, trying to figure out what could be done with only days to go before his execution, but there were very few options. When it became clear there was no way to stop the execution, the family turned their attention to what would happen to Mr. Duncan's body after his death. They seemed particularly concerned, for religious reasons, with preventing the state from performing an autopsy on their son's body. The date of the execution arrived, and Horace Duncan's was killed in a botched execution that made national news. Correctional officials had plugged the electrodes into the chair incorrectly, so only a partial electrical charge was delivered to Mr. Duncan's body when the electric chair was activated. After several agonizing minutes, the chair was turned off, but Mr. Duncan's was still alive, unconscious, but breathing. Officials waited several more minutes for the body to cool before realizing that the electrodes had not been connected properly. They made alterations and electrocuted Mr. Duncan's again, and this time it worked. They killed him. Following this cruelly mishandled execution, the state performed an autopsy against the family's repeated requests. I received a call from Mr. Duncan's distraught father after the execution. He said, They could take his life, even though he didn't get a fair trial and he didn't deserve that. But they had no right to mess with his body and soul, too. We want to sue them. We provided some aid to the volunteer lawyer on the case, and a suit was filed, although there wasn't much hope. There were a few depositions, but no judgment of relief. The civil suit failed to slow down the state of Alabama, which moved ahead aggressively with more execution dates. We relocated to our new office in Montgomery in the shadow of these two executions. The men on death row were more agitated and unnerved than ever. When Herbert Richardson received word in July that his execution was scheduled for August 18, he called me collect from death row. Mr. Stevenson, this is Herbert Richardson, and I've just received notice that the state plans to execute me on August 18. I, I need your help. You can't say no. I know you're helping some of the guys and y'all are opening an office, so please help me. I replied, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your execution date. It's been a very tough summer. What does your volunteer lawyer say? I was still working on the best way to talk to condemned people about how to respond to news of an execution date. I wanted to say something reassuring like, don't worry, but of course that would be a remarkable request to make of anyone. News of a scheduled execution was nothing if not unimaginably worrisome. Sorry didn't seem quite right either, but it tended to be the best I could think of. 
I don't have a volunteer lawyer, Mr. Stevenson. I don't have anyone. My volunteer lawyer said he couldn't do any more to help me over a year ago. I need your help. We still didn't have computers or law books, and I didn't have other lawyers on staff. I had hired a classmate of mine from Harvard Law School who agreed to join our staff and move to Alabama from his home in Boston. I was thrilled to finally have some help. He had been in Montgomery for a few days when I had to leave town for a fundraising trip. When I returned, he was gone. He left a note explaining that he didn't realize how challenging it would be for him to live in Alabama. He hadn't been there a week. Trying to stop an execution would mean nonstop work, 18 hours a day for a month, desperately trying to get a stay order from a court. Only an all out effort would get it done, and it was still wildly improbable that we'd succeed in blocking the execution. When I could think of nothing to fill the silence, Richardson continued. Mr. Stevenson, I have 30 days. Please say you'll help me. I didn't know what else to do but be truthful. Mr. Richardson, I'm so sorry, but I don't have books, staff, computers, or anything we need to take on new cases yet. I haven't even hired lawyers. I'm trying to get things set up, but I have an execution date. You have to represent me. What's the point of all of that other stuff if you're not going to help people like me? I could hear his breath growing ragged. They're going to kill me, he said. I know what you're saying, and I'm trying to figure out how to help. We're just so overextended. I didn't know what to say, and a long silence fell between us. I could hear him breathing heavily on the phone, and I could imagine how frustrated he must be. I was bracing myself for him to say something angry or bitter, stealing myself to absorb his understandable rage. But then the phone suddenly went silent. He'd hung up. I was unnerved by the call for the rest of the day and couldn't find sleep that night. I was haunted by my helpless bureaucratic demurrals in the face of his desperation and the silence of his response. The next day he called again, to my relief. Mr. Stevenson, I'm sorry, but you have to represent me. I don't need you to tell me that you can stop this execution. I don't need you to say you can get a stay. But I have 29 days left. And I don't think I can make it if there's no hope at all. Just say you'll do something and let me have some hope. It was impossible for me to say no, so I said yes. I'm not sure there is anything we can do to block this, given where things are, I told him somberly. But we'll try. If you could do something, anything, well, I'd be very grateful.